I want to be very careful how I talk about what us is about because I want to leave some runway for people to explore what it means to them. It really is a movie that was made with a clear social statement in mind, but it's also a movie that I, I think is best when it's personalized. It's a movie about the duality of mankind, and it's a movie about our fear of invasion, of the other, of um, the outsider, and the revelation that we are our own worst enemy. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. This is a bi-weekly show that's released every other Monday, and this is episode 171. This episode of Horror Movie Podcast is brought to you by our Movie Podcast Network patrons and by Shudder, the Netflix for horror, where you can try Shudder free for 30 days. Just go to Shudder.com and use the promo code HMP when signing up. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and the promo code HMP. On Horror Movie Podcast, you get in-depth horror movie reviews for classics and new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. This is Gilman Joel Robertson, and my co-hosts are... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, and we're Americans. <laughs> <laughs> On this episode of Horror Movie Podcast, we have our African American Horror Part 1, where we'll be reviewing two 2019 new releases, Jordan Peele's Us and the Shudder-exclusive documentary Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. The latter film is part of our Shudder-sponsored Screaming Online segment. We'll also have an interview with one of the writer-producers of Horror Noir, who is one of our guests tonight. And we are joined by not one, but two Ashleys. Well, an Ash and an Ashley. Ash Caldwell is here with us and Ashley Blackwell is here as well and welcome ladies to the show. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so Ashley, would you like to uh, introduce yourself to the audience? Tell them a little bit about yourself. I'm Ashley Blackwell, founder of Grave Rush of Sisters and I uh, co-wrote and produced the documentary on Shudder called Horror Noir. Excellent. Thank you very much. And Ash? Hello, my fellow horror movie lovers. <laughs> my name's Ash. I'm from Cincinnati, and I'm one of the co-hosts on Kill the Dead podcast. So glad to have both of you here. So yeah, Ashley, I've been a big fan of yours for a couple of years, uh, just stalking your Twitter feed because it's there's so much good content. You know, there are those Twitter feeds that every time you log on, they just have like six things you want to retweet. That's how Ashley's Twitter feed is for me. Uh, there's mm -hmm. always an interesting article or something that I want to dive into, an interesting profile on a filmmaker or an artist. And then Ash, we got to meet you uh, as a listener of our show. And then I've subsequently been checking out your show kill the dead podcast so it's a real pleasure to have you on as well thank you i'm so excited to be on here 
It's like a dream come true for me. That's awesome. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, it's a dream come true for us as well. Yes. Okay, so we are here for a very important event. We are reviewing us. Jason? Jason? Where were you? I didn't know if you were lost. Stick with me and I'll keep you safe. There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scared of a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora, put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. You people. It's us. They look exactly like us. They think like us. They know where we are. We need to move and keep moving. They won't stop until they kill us. And we kill them. Us is a 2019 horror film written and directed by Jordan Peele, and it stars Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, Elizabeth Moss, and many other wonderful actors. And I'm going to read the IMDBA quick short synopsis because I feel like I'm going to have to work really extra hard to not spoil things on this one because this is definitely the kind of movie that I feel like I'm going to personally feel a lot more comfortable (laughs) during the spoiler part of this conversation. But the basic synopsis is a family's serenity turns to chaos when a group of doppelgangers begins to terrorize them. Sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It completely tells you nothing, <laughs> but it's it's the basic setup. That's, that's yeah. That's about as basic as it gets. It's basically about a family who goes on a, a weekend vacation to the countryside. In this case, it's in Santa Cruz, California, and the to a lake area, and they're going to stay at their family lake house. So it, it sounds like a familiar setup for a horror movie, I guess, in that sense, but it kind of turns pretty quickly into a bit of a home invasion film. And then as Joel mentioned in his introduction, a doppelganger film, it rides the line somewhere between it has a bit of a body snatchery element, but it's not quite a body snatcher film. Uh, It deals more with the implications of what it means to have this alternate version of yourself, a doppelganger in your life and in the world. And, uh, it's, it's a very interesting movie. I was a Definitely. big fan of Get Out, so I'm just going to say that up front. I, for me, Get Out, I've never officially reviewed it on the show, but Get Out is in the 9 to 9.5 out of 10 range for me. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I was a huge fan of Key and Peele. I just, you know, I, I, and I, I, even, I remember watching Jordan Peele. I, he was on Mad TV in, in his early part of his career, right? I'm not imagining that that was a thing because I, I remember seeing no, him. Was, yeah. yeah, I yeah, remember seeing was. him on there. So 
Uh, you know, I've always been a fan of his, but to find that he was a such a big horror fan and like a true, like you just he knows his stuff. And you know, when he did get out and would watch a lot of interviews with him, and I was like, God, I just love how much he brings his passion for horror and and just all all the levels to that movie. It made it so much different and so much more interesting than so much other horror stuff that you know we often see. So when uh, when I found out about us, I was equally excited. And this has got a, this movie has been easily in the top two to three movies that I was excited for for this year. Uh, I mean, just I was over the moon excited to see this movie. So I went in with high expectations, which I got to be honest, for me, is typically very dangerous <laughs> because I often find that it's, it's this weird thing that happens. And I don't know if it's a something contrarian within me where by by the I'm like, ah, you know, it wasn't it didn't quite do it for me. I mean, it happens to me often, often, often. So with us, I went in with very high expectations. My wife and I went and saw it. Um, you know, it's an afternoon matinee. We go to see this movie and I don't think I was expecting what I got. And I am so happy about that fact that it was everything I was hoping it would be. And in a way, nothing that I thought it would be <laughs> because, you know, just based on the trailers and, and everything else, I had all these preconceived notions of what I thought it would be. But just from and I know we're getting the spoilers and I got, boy, this is hard. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, on my, here's the problem on my other show. I'm so used to just being like, hey, we spoil the crap out of everything. Well, we can't do it here. So um, so for, I guess the best and easiest way for me to say this is I was pleasantly surprised that my expectations were not only met, but were exceeded. How's that? Sounds good to me. <laughs> no, I so I had a similar reaction with it's, and I don't want to just compare this completely to get out the entire time, but it's kind of unavoidable to some degree when the filmmaker has one other release in the genre. But um, Get Out was like a life changing movie for me, honestly. Like it was my favorite film of that year. The theater experience, watching that surrounded by white people, was amazing. Like everything about that movie worked for me on the social level, but it also was just a really fun horror thriller. I left that film so energized. I was over the moon. And so I think, I don't know what I expected from this film, but I did expect kind of this, a similar feeling. And when this film ended, I was like, what? Like, I didn't really <laughs> know what to think. I was just like, okay, I have a lot of thinking to do over the next couple of days before we review this. <laughs> and it was a completely different feeling than I left the theater uh, from and get out. It was interesting, but I was kind of like, okay, well, first of all, I see why they tapped him for twilight zone or why he would be interested in twilight zone. That was my first thought. Also, I did, I will say I went and saw this a second time because I felt like I had to, to really wrap my head around it. And I will say if this is a film that, greatly benefits from a second viewing i think that like something like the sixth sense you watch it completely differently the second time when i watched this film the first time i was so focused on symbols and meaning and i was watching every corner of the screen and and just focused on allegory and i kind of regret that i wish i would have just gone in for the ride the first time because a lot of people have talked about who who weren't looking for any deeper meaning who just kind of watched this as a horror flick had a really great time with it. And I, and I, and I would suggest people out there do that. If they haven't seen this film yet, just go and just appreciate it on a surface level the first time, because you'll never be able to do it again. 
because <laughs> when you watch the film a second time, it is so rich with symbology. Like you, you'll never get to have that just that plain old roller coaster ride experience again. I had complicated feelings about this, but it, w- it was largely to do with trying to unpack the themes of the film and the meaning of the film. Um, trying to remove myself from that and just see it as like a as a genre film on its own. Mm-hmm. I think it does a lot of interesting things with uh, this kind of doppelganger trope. I think it does a lot of interesting things with the home invasion trope. And I, I don't think it delivers exactly what we'd expect from either of those things, but it's extremely creative and constantly surprising. And so I re- appreciate it on that level as well. Very cool. Ash, how about you? Yeah. Um. So far, I pretty much agree with both, like what both y'all had to say about it. I just remember it was that Christmas day when that first trailer dropped, my mouth dropped. <laughs> I was just yeah. so excited because like when I first heard about him coming out with this this film, I was like, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this. So when that trailer first dropped, I hurried up and like bought my ticket. Like I spread the word to everybody about like, hey, you have to watch this trailer. You got to watch it. So Going into this movie, I knew that I had to kind of stay open minded, but at the same time, like I tried to not go into the movie with expectations. But the back of my mind, I had expectations. <laughs> but um, yeah, um, it's so hard with a it, film yes, like this. It, it, it is. is. It is. So I mean, I knew I would have to like try to stay a little focused, but um, I was impressed. Mm-hmm. I was satisfied. Um, I know a lot of people are like, get out. It's just going to be his one. Come on now. I have a good feeling about Jordan. Like he has something that we've been missing for a while now in the horror genre. So I was really impressed with this film. I got a lot more than I expected. I just, uh, and I actually saw it again last night. Cause I was like, okay, I feel like I'm missing some things. So I saw it again last night and I, all I have to say is that I was really happy with the film. Would you agree with me that it feels completely different on the second viewing? Oh yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, it definitely does. That's interesting. I was going to ask you both that because I, the one thing I thought afterwards, I've been thinking about this movie pretty much nonstop. I feel like in, in, in a, in a totally different way, I had had a similar effect to me as hereditary did in that it stuck with me. It really stuck mm-hmm. with me for days yeah. afterwards. And I keep thinking through certain things. And there have been certain things that I was questioning. Oh, is there a logical issue? Like, why am I, why am I, I'm trying to make this one piece fit to this. But then as soon as I start thinking, of it, well, if they think of it as an allegory. And, and so I, I know I have to see it a second time. I know I do. So, I, I mean, I'd still, I think I may have gone, even though I had expectations, I still think I enjoyed it on much more that level of it's a horror film. So right. I am happy I did that. But yeah. now that I've experienced it, I, I, I realize it's sort of like it's been an unfolding in my brain. And I know that second viewing is going to be about just analysis of one side and down the other. So I was curious. Yeah, I, I, so I had read an article or I actually, I don't even think I read the article. I think I just saw the headline from Scott Wampler at birth movies death. And it said, us has to be seen to be twice to be appreciated or something like that. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to have time to do that before the podcast, but maybe I can somehow watch it the first time as though I'm watching it for the second time, <laughs> which I think put me in that weird state of mind that I was in trying to kind of like real time analysis while I'm consuming the film. But uh, yeah, even having done that, I was surprised how much every little nuance of the film changed. And really, honestly, that's, due to Lupita Nyong'o's performance, like mm-hmm. 
more than anything or as much as anything else, the precision with which her performance is executed is so impressive on a second view. They better not pull a Tony Collette. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they better nominate her. I'm just saying. I'm I'm, I'm I'm throwing down the gauntlet right now. Because what she achieves between the I mean, just the two roles and oh my God. Anyway, sorry, Dave. <laughs> what are your what are your thoughts? Um, I saw it for the first time, and I've only seen it once. I saw it uh, earlier this afternoon. And you go in, and obviously Jordan Peele is he's, he's get out, and you're thinking, okay, this is his sophomore effort. And um, you hear early word that there's not a sophomore slump, and you're happy about that. But as you're watching, and, and I'm look, I'm, that opening scene, I think, is what, what really pulled me in. Um, he throws some images at you right out of the, you know, the, of, of rabbits, a bunch of rabbits in a cage and and um, uh, watching TV. That, that commercial for Hands Across America, which I remember, <laughs> that commercial from 1986. Right. Um, and then he goes right into that scene on the boardwalk. And the way that it's, it's constructed, you know, you, you have uh, Madison Curry plays the young, young Adelaide. Uh, Adelaide, yeah. yeah. And the camera is kind of almost like from her point of view. Uh, Jordan Peele is keeping it behind and a little low, like looking up at the parents and you're seeing them from behind as the father's trying to win her something at that game and she ends up with the Thriller t-shirt. And then as they're walking along, you feel the friction between the parents. Again, you're, you're seeing it all from her point of view. And then when she decides to wander off she's observing things looking over seeing a couple over here somebody in the military and walking along the boardwalk and you just get the feeling that these are going to be important but it's not overstated it's not to the point that it's it's contrived it's just observations that that you're figuring okay these are going to come in and then down on the beach that great shot of the lightning out in the distance and then going into that hall of mirrors, I guess was find yourself, which becomes, I think, a big message throughout the, whole, the entire movie. And just how that scene is shot. And that's where the horror starts to really kick in. You get the feeling that you're kind of in the hands uh, of somebody who almost almost with with a master's touch and i i don't want to overstate that i know this is only a second film but almost on the lines of something if you're looking back in film history like something along the lines of a hitchcock who was so meticulous in the way he forms everything and puts it all together and you get that in us you get that right from that opening scene and you know that you're to the point that you just can't wait to see how this is going to unfold because of the way that it's put together and i think the imagery in this movie is phenomenal um that great shot up the driveway um you know when the family is like uh hey there's someone in the driveway hey, there's no one in the drive oh there's someone in the driveway <laughs> you know the, the way that the whole movie is put together i think it, it really makes you excited to see what jordan peele is going to do 10 films from now i mean this is this is almost along the lines of the excitement of if you go back to the early 90s with with quentin tarantino and what he was doing this right. is on that level for me with and and especially when when you you just sort of turn yourself over to it and you just can't wait to see where it goes excellent and also you bring up the meticulous thing there i was reminded of even uh, kubrick i mean there's definitely allusions to uh, the shining yes, without giving absolutely. anything away uh, certain yeah. key points and i think i was also floored at how he so 
masterfully to use I, I, I'll overstate it uh, happily uh, <laughs> that he masterfully works in his love for the genre and his homages to the genre and there were several moments where I just felt like why am I getting a vibe from this or a vibe from that but it never the scene on the beach you know where mm-hmm. where the, the sun had wandered off did you not get a Jaws vibe yeah. from the way that yes. that was sort of pushed he, together he's wearing a Jaws shirt <laughs> right. yeah, no, you're right you're right That's yeah I think it was in, totally intentional so right. Ashley Geek out with us. <laughs> okay, I'll try to be brief. Um, no, it's, you know, even though I've talked about it, not exhaustively, obviously, yet, but um, I still f- have a hard time knowing where to begin with this one. I think because for me, um, I did see it twice. I saw it um, Thursday night, and then I came home from a flight from Boston, and because I wanted to see it with um, some of the kids I work with and my coworkers. And I needed that second viewing, even though I spent, you know, Thursday evening and night and even some of the morning, just I, for me, the movie, I, I, I will say this, I will say, be careful what you wish for. I feel like because I had been spending years and years and years wanting a film like this, like wanting a film that's mainstream, that's by a black creator, that's about, you know, a black family, not just a black family, but dark skinned black family with a dark skinned black woman at the center, like all of these things were kind of coming into place. And then the actual representation of, you know, it's a horror film. So the intent is to invoke, you know, terror or fear within you. And it hit me on an emotional level that I didn't expect. And it just really just kind of destroyed me and the more Mm. I kind of think about those elements because I'm looking at every minute detail I'm looking at the emotional expressions on people's faces I'm hearing the tone of a child's voice like all of these things are like transporting me back you know I down to her hairstyle I I wore my hair like that wait a minute I love thriller and not even (laughs) just loving thriller but but having that same reaction to it where there was this not a repulsion but I was petrified of it but there was still something compelling me to keep watching it like Mm -hmm. I wanted to face that fear because at the same time I love this but I'm like so scared and so I'm seeing these very familiar nuances and of life and of the way I was and you know and young Adelaide and I was just like oh my god I'm not emotionally prepared to deal with this (laughs) I'm to deal with all of these childhood traumas that I had and that this child is actually experiencing I'm like holy it it was just so it was it destroyed me and it made me feel if we as a society generally suppress our emotions to be able to function in society really pushes you to bring those things out and usually for the better if you look if you're looking at it in a healthy way and so I think that's what um us did for me it's hard it's really hard for me to talk about it without spoiling it Mm -hmm. I will I will just say that it just hit me deeper than I thought it ever would that's interesting so you're you said at the start of this um you know be careful what you wish for so was it a case where you hadn't really seen yourself on screen but then in seeing yourself on screen it actually was much more emotionally impactful than you had anticipated it could be exactly that's really interesting i'm not gonna lie based on what ashley just said i'm really wanting to get to the spoiler part of this (laughs) (laughs) so i mean not to be pushy if you guys have more you want to say uh, in a more general vague sort of way i'm all for it i mean i think there's a lot of like little things we could say i mean i don't know how much we want to get into all the easter eggy things i think they're fun to talk about as horror fans they're probably going to be like 300 youtube videos that go over all of that stuff so i don't know if 
it's the best use of our time but i i was excited about all of the the little references all throughout the film and you know as a horror fan you get a little bit of a charge every time you recognize one right Mm -hmm. and there are so many other funny pop cultural references as well that aren't even horror related like the use of music in the film uh i don't i don't want to spoil the tracks that they are in the non-spoiler section because both of them the two well actually there's several but the two in the house really both kind of not only had me laughing my head off but then also later and especially on the second view and really thinking about the lyrics of those songs and like what they could be communicating further and they and they worked on that kind of on the nose metaphorical level as well so i thought i don't know i really appreciated his use of music throughout the film and just his attention to detail as you said dave um you i really did feel that feeling that he thought about every inch of the frame every bit of dialogue that was spoken um and that's again something i noticed more on the second viewing because the first viewing i'm just watching 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 the second viewing lines that i had thought were maybe just like little throwaway bits of dialogue actually are infused with a ton of meaning on the second viewing so i don't know it was really an amazing experience in that way I, was, I saw an interview recently with him where he talked about some of the music and obviously the score by Michael Abels. I've been listening to that. It is fantastic. And, you know, we can go into that more if you guys want to. But uh, it, it is just a fantastic score. But the specific songs you're referring to, they without giving anything away, he basically said he, he loves taking a song and sort of changing how people view that song. <laughs> so mm. I, I, lo- I love that idea because to his point, you know, you'll hear those songs again and you'll always have it in your head. And I think, you know, I got five on it and the way that it's changed, especially at a couple of key points in the movie. Sure. That, but, right. but, but what, what I love, what I love is he said that for him, it was that those little like almost bell like notes reminded him. He's such a big Nightmare on Elm Street fan that he it reminded him of that. He's always thought it was a creepy song because of that. And I thought it was actually kind of cool. I, I like that he hear he heard that in it. And that was what inspired him. Because I think honestly, that musical piece, I, I predict will become as iconic as any other horror theme that we know and love today. The Nightmare on Elm Street mm. theme, Halloween, all of them. I think it will be that that little melody will forever people hear that and it'll creep them out <laughs> and they'll remember that's it. fascinating right and coming as, at it as uh, appropriated music i guess is interesting yeah kind of like you like you know again how quentin tarantino was able to do that takes popular songs and then uh kind of make them his own uh, that's yes. interesting. yeah all right well then my final thoughts are us is everything I was hoping it would be at the same time. And we can go into this a little bit more in in the uh, spoiler section, if you guys want to, that there were moments about it that in hindsight, I had not frustrations, not the right word, because that's too strong. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I'm upset that this doesn't seem to make sense. I, I, I felt that it was more of a flaw in me and my lack of intellect or something. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be so hard on yourself, Joel. Come on. really. I know. I was like, I was like, why, what is wrong with me? Why can't I figure this out? It's a puzzle. It's an enigma wrapped inside. So, so I basically, I I kind of, but I like that because I'm a bit of a masochist. And so I enjoyed that. And (laughs) I, I just, I, I give this movie, I give this movie a nine. I say, see it in the theater, buy it on Blu-ray or, you know, 4k, whatever the hell you got when it comes out. (laughs) Uh, Ashley? Yeah. Uh, 
see it in the theater. Um, I guess it's personal preference. A pet peeve of mine is people who talk through all the goddamn movie. Um, <laughs> you know, you, t- you take your risk going to see it in the theaters. I hate that, that that's an experience that has to be sullied, but like, I, I think it's definitely worth seeing it in the theater. It's a movie that you're going to see more than once. Um, if I were to give it a rating, I, I would say nine and a half. And I'm hesitant to maybe say 10 because, um, Maybe technical, but th- but I feel like it's th- part of this movie's strength. Like it, it being so convoluted definitely works in its favor. Mm-hmm. I think I'm sure all of us here have been super invested in television shows and films that are like heavy convoluted, have this like crazy mythos that you're always trying to unpack even to this day. Right, even right, if the yeah. even if the show went off the air like ten years ago. Right. I shoot lost. I lost what? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and I've heard people be very um mixed on their feelings about it and just completely didn't like it for whatever reason and the people who love it. So I think noticing people's reception of it all across the board, I could, I, I think it does have to do with maybe just wanting something a little bit more streamlined. Again, I don't know. You can't, you know, I guess you can't please everybody with your art. I, I learned that the hard way. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say nine and a half, I guess. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. So uh, let's go kick it over to Dave. One of the things I love about movies just in general, uh, but especially horror movies, is is originality. Um, and I say it all the time about my all-time favorite Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you look at the opening sequence and then you look at the ending sequence and you say, how the hell did we get here from there? And I get that feeling from this film where you just, you ha- you cannot predict the steps. You cannot you know, even though it pays homage to the genre, it's not a predictable movie where where by the time it's over, you're like, wow, that was a hell of a ride. And I absolutely love that about movies. I love uh, what Jordan Peele did here for a second film, uh, you know, with, with Get Out. Poor Orson Welles never recovered from Citizen Kane because, the, well, he wasn't allowed to. But, um, you know, he tried to make great movies and they just wouldn't let him. Jordan Peele has managed to make two near masterpieces, and I'm saying near masterpieces because I just haven't seen them enough. Um, This is my first viewing of us, and I will say a 9.5 out of 10, and I say definitely see it uh, in the theater, and I will be buying it when it comes out. Yeah. All right. Ash, what do you think? All right. So I agree with everybody. I personally like movies that give me like that tingling feeling. Mm-hmm. I love to have that personal connection to it. And mm-hmm. I remember like when I went to see Get Out, when I went to see Hereditary and Suspiria, sitting in that theater, holding my breath, like watching these films. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> and I like that feeling. I like to mm-hmm. be in that moment and just like embrace it. And this film, I remember just like sitting there like holding my breath, like, <gasps> <laughs> like I'm, I'm scared to like make a noise i'm scared to blink like i don't want to do anything i might miss something and i love that with the movie i love to feel that connection with the movie i give it a 9.5 out of 10 i highly recommend it i'm all about supporting pretty much any genre but mainly horror go out support it like it deserves it so i would definitely be buying it when it comes out i will be showing it to like all my friends and my family mm-hmm. this movie was Amazing. Cold chills. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So far, everybody's making me feel bad about my rating. Like I went too low. Like, like, (laughs) what what the hell's wrong with you? What? Did you see the same movie we did? I I know. I really feel like I should be called out. Like what's, what's wrong with you, man? Yeah. All right. Let's see what happens. The last card has yet to be played. Josh, what is your rating recommendation? 
Okay, so I think I'm the most mixed of everyone. So when Ashley was talking about how she's seen audiences mixed on the film, I understand it because I think it is convoluted in, in that way where, so like with Get Out, as we mentioned before, I feel like it works on the symbolic level and there's so much there to digest, but it also just works on this really easy genre level and that, that anybody can go into and not have any appreciation for the genre, not think any deeper about the issues and just enjoy get out. I don't know that this is the same experience, but I appreciate Jordan Peele for swinging for the fences on this one, because I think you never know if you're going to get to make another movie. I think, you know, as, as Joel said, he'll probably going to get to based on the box office returns, (laughs) but you never know what's going to happen in a business like the film business. So he's put in a position after get out where he can kind of do anything he wants. And for him to say, I'm going to make an art film (laughs) is pretty ballsy in my opinion. (laughs) And I, I love that about it. And so I love the, and I think where I felt mixed was, And again, it may have been the way I watched it because I didn't allow myself to just kind of go on that ride of the, you know, watching a horror flick. I was really in analytical thought while I was watching the film. So, you know, that could, it's definitely could be on me, but I think um, I didn't have that same kind of roller coaster ride that I had with Get Out and I wanted it. But as Joel said, this stuck with me for days. I thought about it and I thought, you know, I have to see this again before we record. So I, and I, I went today and I'm so glad I did because I feel like it cleared up a lot of my issues. Cause I think a lot of my issues were, you know, cause you can get in a, into the weeds on the nitpicky stuff. You're like, well, where did this come from? How did they do this? And if, if this is supposed to be taken literally, then I have all of these plot issues with it. If it's allegorical, then it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's a fantasy. It's a flight of fancy and none of that matters as much. And I think this film's trying to do both. <laughs> and so that's where I think I, I'm, I was running into walls with my appreciation for it. The second time really made me feel a lot better about it, especially some of the minor nitpicky things. I should have just trusted that I was in good hands. I think, I think I was proved on my second viewing. Oh no, they thought of that. No, they thought of that too. Oh no, he, he knew about that and he put something in here to address that. So, you know, I think um, I can now confidently say, I think this is a nine out of 10. I think it's a must-see film. I think it's one of the best films we're going to get this year. I'm not going to be surprised if this is on my top 10 list, very close toward the top of my top 10 list. I would tell people to see it in the theater. I think it's important to support, as Ash said, the genre. I also think it's important to support, as Dave alluded to, I think, original content, you know, an original film that's not just a, a sequel. You know, this is, by Joel's count, the third most successful horror film, but really it's the first in terms of original content. So I think we need to support that as well. It's true. And I'm definitely going to be buying the Blu-ray when it comes out. So yeah, I, I quite enjoyed us. And, and thank you for validating my rating as well, Josh. That, that was nice. <laughs> that was the main point. Uh, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> my two warnings are really just don't try to overthink it and just try to let it wash over you on the first viewing. And then my second would be see it a second time. <laughs> if you, if you, did, if you don't think you liked it, see it, see it again. For sure. Yes. I think your opinion may change. I agree with you 100% because there's too many people out there now saying like, I don't get it. This movie is stupid. And I actually seen a couple people say 2.2 2, oh, 2 out of 10. come on. Yes. Come on. I'm like, That's not even on, fair. People. That's not even fair. I mean, you, can say, <laughs> you can say, okay, I didn't get it. But you're not even just on general you know, just the craft. I mean, just, you can't. Come on. That's just. Yeah. yeah. And we didn't talk much about that. I guess Dave did. But the 
like every element of the film in terms of a of the filmmaking craft is on point. Like it's highest echelon of cinematic achievement. It was made with a, a very confident, sure hand. You could tell. Like whoever yeah. made this movie, it was they were confident and they are and they're good. And that's I mean, yeah. I think the one thing that's up for debate is do you? It would be I guess the screenplay portion. Like, do you think that the story was handled? Well, but I think I think it was ultimately, and I, I think every other element is really not arguable, and particularly the cast is magnificent on all fronts. All right, so that's going to do it for our review of us. Please tell us your theories, your crazy, wacky conspiracies about us at the site for the show notes for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com. Now, the spoiler discussion for us, we did have a pretty in-depth spoiler discussion, is actually going to be at the end of the episode. Now, during that discussion, towards the end of it, we lost Ashley from the call. So we just want to make you aware of that. Uh, but all of that will be at the end of the episode. And uh, Josh, do you want to go ahead and give them the contact information for Ashley? Yeah, find Ashley on Twitter at Graveyard Sister. Again, she's a really good follow. Um, she's always posting interesting articles, and those articles are usually found at graveyardshiftsisters.com. All right. So, Ash, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here and sharing your obvious love for us and uh, Jordan Peele. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. Like I said, it's been a blast this is like a dream come true for me i've been a big fan of this show so i am just grateful for this opportunity so thank you absolutely well, thank you. you yeah it's been great having you on would you like to tell the wonderful listeners where they can find you online yeah you can actually find me on twitter at ash to ashes so ash the number two ashes and if you like to check out the show that i co-host on is called kill the dead podcast you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram. We have a Facebook page, Kill the Dead One. And we also have a website. So killthedeadpodcast.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That yeah, was great talking to you. Thank you. Yes, great, great talking to you. That's awesome. Thank you for joining us. All right. At this point in the show, let's go to our screaming online segment. This installment of Screaming Online is sponsored by Shudder. Now, for those who don't know, Shudder is what the cool kids call horror Netflix, essentially. It's a premium streaming video service, and it's great. I love it. Uh, they've got all kinds of great films from thrillers to horror to suspense, and you can get it for the low, low cost of $4.99 a month. You can stream Shutter on your Apple devices, as well as Android devices, Xbox, Amazon Fire, Roku, Google Chromecast, and more. Currently on Shutter, there's all kinds of great content. First of all, there's the film we're talking about tonight, Horror Noir. But not only that, they have a lot of the films discussed on Horror Noir available to watch, which is great because as soon as you finish this, you can say, you know what I've never seen? Ganjin Hess. And then you can just 
go ahead and check that out right away, which I think is a great feature to have for a film like that. They also have Critters, A New Binge, which hit Shudder on March 21st. Joel, have you had a chance to check that out yet? I have not, but I have queued it up and I am actually extraordinarily excited about that one. A New Binge is a perfect title, so we can, you can just binge right through those 10-minute episodes. We're all also big fans of Joe Bob Briggs and the latest Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs hit Shudder on March 29th, so just a couple of days ago as of this release so you should be able nice. to find that now if you log on to shutter i know one of our listeners shane the maniac said he was taking friday off work inviting a friend over and him and his son and they're gonna get some beers and some pizza and spend the day watching joe bob Briggs. so that's awesome sounds like the perfect way to watch joe bob <laughs> and of course there are other shutter originals and exclusives like dead wax and king cohen the documentary about recently deceased Larry Cohen. Yes, Larry yeah. Cohen. Yes, Larry, Larry Cohen. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yes. The Winged Serpent and so many other great it's movies. Alive. It's Alive, which is a good one, yeah. Yeah, and I watched King Cohen uh, the other day when we found out that he had passed. I felt like, well, that was a this is a good way to pay tribute to him. I'm going to click on Shutter and watch King Cohen. So we're about to get into our personal experiences with uh, Horror Noir. If you want to watch that one or any of the other titles I mentioned, you can try Shutter free for 30 days. Just go to Shutter.com and use promo code HMP. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and promo code HMP. There we go. All right. So now that we are screaming online, we're talking about Horror Noir, the 2019 documentary, A History of Black Horror. And uh, Dave, do you have a little synopsis about what this documentary is about i do i'm going to take this right from imdb it's horror noir a history of black horror uh, from 2019 and well it starts off wrong it says and look instead of a look uh, <laughs> at the history of black horror films and the role of african americans in the film genre from the very beginning that is about as basic as you can get there's a lot more to this movie it is a documentary it does trace sort of the history of African-Americans in in horror films. And it, it starts out way back at the beginning with probably one of the most horrific horror films for African-American, not a horror film uh, per se, but Birth of a Nation, and carries it forward from there as to the, the depictions and, and how African-Americans have been portrayed in horror films and uh, you know what, what they've meant to the genre. It's interesting because you, you see clips from the films, you have a lot of scholars discussing it and they also have scenes of uh like in a theater where you have uh, these these uh, couples like you have um ken foray keith david and keith david sitting there talking about uh, a lot of the movies it's so much and, fun yes yeah it is just, just to hear all these people ernest dickerson's in there and richard richard lawson who uh, i only really ever knew him from poltergeist yep. it's a very interesting documentary i love these documentaries about film and it's just very interesting to see some of the movies that that we hold so dear and um, just looking at it from, from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the most interesting things about this documentary is it was eye-opening in that way. And it takes you all the way up to, to get out with Jordan Peele and the importance of that and how it sort of broke that mold of, well, you know, mainstream audiences aren't going to go to a movie with black protagonists. Uh, so Hollywood avoided that for so many years, although I think that was a sort of self-imposed or self-created Hollywood, uh, problem. 
Yeah. yeah, exactly. That that they said, well, nobody will go, but they never tried. They just assumed, which we see from the studio system going way, way back where they just, you know, they'd like to think they had their finger on the pulse of society and they just often did not. It's an interesting film and in, in that it goes back to the beginning and you see how there have been horror films, even back in the in the 20s. I can't remember the gentleman's name. He was part of Amos and Andy. Wasn't the last name Spencer? Yeah, I believe so. And they say it's very, it's a shame because that's what he's going to be remembered for. His name is Nandy. But meanwhile, he was a filmmaker who was really sort of pushing the African-American viewpoint. Yeah, I think it was Spencer Williams. Spencer Williams. Okay. Yes. And it takes you right through. It takes you all the way up through to the 50s, at, uh, to uh, the black exploitation period, then into the 80s, where it sort of took a backward turn again. Uh, I thought what's very interesting is how a lot of horror fans look at the 90s as a lesser decade. But as far as the progression of, of African-Americans in horror films, it was a very strong decade. Uh, yeah, and they point out it, it really is. And they point out some of the films and it, it, it truly is. And then once you get into the 2000s, right up to get it out, uh, it's just a great progression. And it really does delve deep, I think, um, into the whole genre and just how African-Americans have uh, been a part of it or have not been a part of it. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating also within the context of watching us, how this is a, a rare opportunity to see a regular black family depicted on screen. You know, even in the nineties, when you would say, well, that was a strong era for black representation of horror. It still is always like tales in the hood, you know, like it's always a leprechaun in the hood. It's always based on characters who are criminals and to have a film where it's kind of showing these characters in the way a white family would normally be shown as this all-American family, you know, in this case, upper-middle-class all-American family, and we're just normal people. There's a whole collection of, of movies about white families dealing with, uh, there goes the neighborhood to monsters in some kind of weird way. One of the, the things I, I realized we'd never seen was what happens when there's a black family in the center uh, of a horror movie. In, in many ways, this movie is not about race, but I, I do recognize that just the, the fact alone, we have a black family in the center of this movie, there's a completely new palette to how we experience this horror. The films never really served us, our identity. And um, people with black skin just didn't fare very well. It, it, it's just a kind of a confusing and unfortunate thing for me growing up, sort of being in love with horror movies, but also not feeling very well represented. The fact that that hasn't existed before is kind of shocking in 2019, right. for one thing. But then also it's interesting then in that context to see how white characters are used in that film. And, and you know, you wonder, are they used the way that uh, minorities might be used in another film, like The Best Friend? Or the guy who comes out and is like, hey, get off my car kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. like these are the right. white characters in the film. And you wonder, oh, is that where minorities have been relegated to those types of roles? Right. In mainstream Hollywood movies. Yeah, it made me think, too, when they get into the concept of the trope of the uh, black character that's always killed first, right? Or can't make it to the final reel of the movie. Right. And, and, it, and it got me thinking the fact that it's got to be so unbelievably frustrating as an actor. I believe that it's the um, Kelly Joe Mintner, who is awesome, 
Of course, People Under the Stairs, Nightmare 5. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Summer School, right. which I know is not horror at all, but we mentioned that uh, an episode yeah. or two ago. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, she's she's sitting there with Miguel Nunez Jr., who I, I know we're all pretty much on the same page that part five is not our favorite one, right? But, <laughs> but, yeah. Friday the 13th. But, he, you know, he was in Return of the Living Dead. Uh, his character in part five, in my opinion, is one of the high points. So... The, the fact is, is I, I loved them going back and forth because they said something very interesting. At one point, he says, you know, maybe that is viewed as, you know, the trope from that time period. I'm totally paraphrasing here. It's not exactly what he said, but that he gets into that idea of, you know, but I got a paycheck and I'm in a Friday the 13th movie and you're not. <laughs> so it was a great line. But I could say, you know, I almost could feel like it's totally understandable that you would resent that, that, you know, it's like, dang, man, I finally, you know, you, you get somewhere, you're, you're, you know, you're doing something, in your career. And then people are like, yeah, but you know, it's just this thing. They're just doing it because you're you know, the, the quote unquote token, which it just, yeah. it sounds so demeaning to me that, and I get that that's what it was viewed as, but you know, from the perspective of an actor, I mean, you're an actor and you're just doing your thing and you're getting your paycheck. You're taking your opportunity. Yeah. Loretta Devine, the lady from Urban Legend, she talks about that. She's like, I didn't feel like a token. I felt like I'd worked my whole life to get to here and this was the next step in my career. You know, that's really disappointing. Yeah, it is. It's it's, it's very devaluing. It devalues their work. It devalues them as people. There's something about that just bugs me, you know? Yeah. Rachel True, how she talked about like, she'd read a script or she'd be like, that's the character I wanted to play. Like, that's I thought this is me like I'm this main character like well no you're the friend and your your role is to say are you okay yeah, how many different ways could she learn to say are you okay checking in with the important character to make sure that they're all right yes yeah. <laughs> right and it was also uh, Richard Lawson that we talked about that was in Poltergeist yes. and he talked about how and he's right he looks like a leading man yeah he does absolutely you know he's got the chiseled features he's a handsome guy like you could totally he see- always struck me as like very Billy D. Williams you know yeah he, or even like a Tom Selleck vibe like just you know the mustache right. Right. everything from back in the day so but yet no you know no that's not what happened so it's not what it's not what and now that's one thing i was i was i thought was interesting to me about the documentary and i wanted to throw it to you guys does it make you look at some of the classics that they touched on and i'm thinking particularly the shining and poltergeist does it make you look at them in even a slightly different way? Well, i'm glad you brought up poltergeist because josh and i had a moment about this because it's literally my only one nitpick about this documentary because i love this documentary i think it's great Mm -hmm. this is so nerdy dorky petty but i'm sorry it bugged me there was one moment when uh robin means coleman she wrote the book horror noir just fantastic every point she's making is wonderful it's spot on i'm totally in line with her and then she says and then like in poltergeist it was like indian barrel ground i was like "Whoa, whoa, whoa what 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 yeah, which is a trope. There's an Indian burial ground trope. Absolutely, it is, but it's not in that movie. In cinema, not not only horror cinema, but just cinema broadly. A lot of westerns right. deal with the Indian burial ground trope. Right, but that wasn't that movie. That was a regular sure, cemetery. Sure. But that's not in Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah it's it a regular a... cemetery. And and even taking it a step further, as we learn in part two, not only that, it was this cult of like you know, white uh, uh, Puritan or whatever the heck they were, and Cain. I mean, they were not. It was not that at all. Now you did have a Native American aspect to part. Two. Too, yes. for sure but all the points about the you know the the suburbs and all, all of those were very interesting to me but for some reason when she says like wait no i also have to say as someone who's like invested in native american stuff a lot she also says well these are about the brown people invading you know white suburbia for no fault of their own they didn't do anything wrong it's the brown people who are 
evil and they're on the recipient of that. I don't, I've never seen that trope as that. I've seen it as almost the reverse of that. I've seen that as these people are doing something wrong by going where they shouldn't be. They're defiling a sacred place. And so even, you know, beyond the fact that she was just totally a misread poltergeist, which I don't think she's alone in. I think generally people think of it as Indian burial ground, uh, movie even though it's not no, um it's a regular I, cemetery that just was never moved mm-hmm. i take issue with her point in general which is this is you know brown evil attacking the innocent white people i don't think that's true i think these are people like those developers and poltergeists these are bad people who know exactly what they're doing right and right. you know and shouldn't be doing what they're doing in the first place so right exactly and uh, okay well then let's look at the shining that one though is different <laughs> I didn't read the book. I did not know that the spoiler for The Shining, if anyone hasn't seen it yet, <laughs> I did not know that the Scatman Crothers character uh, does not die in the book and does in yeah. the movie. Yeah, and it's sad because he is such a strong character, too. You would love yes, to see absolutely. that character go on. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, it's hard because you're dealing with a masterpiece of film in that right. sense, but right. I think they're... I think in that case, the criticism is 100% valid. Um, I just don't know from a narrative point of view, it makes sense, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's unfortunate that it reinforces a negative stereotypical trope. Right. But there are much more egregious examples than any of those as well. Yes. True. Well, well, and it, it was interesting because they talked about the, the stereotype of the black man lusting after the white woman. And they use that in connection to Candyman. And I would say I I could see that the elements of that trope there or that stereotype rather there. But I think my only thought, and it's been a lot to be fair, been a long time since I've seen Candyman, but I recall it was not so much the stereotype of, oh, lusting after the blonde white woman, though she was. It was more a love in a racial love story situation where he had fallen in love with her, her with him. And, you know, at least the earlier version of her. And that is what led to his lynching, which then subsequently, which I feel. But I do agree that aspect that they talked about with the uh, Cabrini Green and how, you know, the fact that Candyman seems to be targeting people from that area which were not the ones that did to him what was done, or you know, they, they, they were the ones that had the fear of him. That was really interesting. And yeah. I, and assuming yeah. Jordan Peele has seen this film and knowing he's making a remake of Candyman, sure. I'm curious if he'll change that element. I would say that would be a, I, I'm actually, again, since it's been so long since I've seen Candyman, I, kind of forgotten that but when they said i was like really that you're right that does seem on the face of it dumb (laughs) like why would it's one of those changes where you could be like well they're changing that for some social reason for people who are scared of anything that could be seen as politically correct but it's one that actually improves the story i agree like it makes way more sense way more narrative sense yeah i really like that yeah i I do want to say too as far as uh, horror noir goes i loved the attention that it gave to Night of the Living Dead. I, I wish they'd maybe given, a, and I understand, you know, there were, I, as we talked about with Ashley, there's limitations and I, no one has to tell you, Josh, I'm sure that how you have to leave a whole bunch of stuff on the cutting room floor when you're doing a documentary to make your general point. But I would like to have seen a little bit more with Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, I think. Oh, definitely. Especially yeah. with Ken in the film. Exactly. That's what right. I was thinking. Exactly. It's a shame. Yeah, because I, I love that. You know, I never, again, never thought about the racial aspects of even Dawn, you know, I mean, because he's there, but it's it's not overly, it's definitely not as obvious as it is in night. So 
when he made the point that when he was reading through the script and there's that moment, I know where uh, Savini, he calls him like chocolate man or something like that, something disparaging. Yeah. And he said, and he yes. goes, and this is the way Ken Foray says, and, I, and I, I know I'm alone on this thing, just the way he says it. It's like, oh man, you know, just, it was powerful. So um, yeah. Yeah, I would, and honestly, I would have loved to have seen even more stuff uh, with uh, Keith David as well. I mean, I, I, again, I, I realize you can't please everybody. <laughs> yeah, that would be my other nitpick on the film is they they're doing a list of the token black characters and they show Keith David in the thing. I and I don't, think was, I don't think that's no. a fair no. Well, no. I, use of the token. Were they, were, well, I, I kind of felt like there were only, and, and I'll just play devil's advocate for one second here. I think the way I took that was he was meant to show how there's those exceptions that sort of prove the rule because he may, he even made the comment mm. of, you know, he made it to the end. You know, right, you right, know, right. And, and the fact that he was, you know, this character that because, yeah, if, if it was meant to be taken that way, I didn't take it that way. I didn't take it. And as, he was not the only black character in the movie anyway. No, he wasn't yeah, on top of that. Well, there's the other thing, like, for instance, with Friday 13th, part five. Um, and I don't have the actor's name in front of me, but the one, the, you know, Miguel Nunez is not the only African-American in that film as well. You know, they got the right, kid. Right. Uh, it was, and uh, yeah, the girlfriend who was singing to him while he was in the toilet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you, Dave. <laughs> and I know we we all have identified this about Night of the Living Dead. Like, it's not a new thing to say, well, look, there's a black lead. In but it was for the first time seeing this documentary where the gravity of that really yes. hit home for me. I was like, right. That was a huge move from Romero. And then to do Dawn of the Dead and do the same thing, like, the guy was really breaking social norms by doing that. Yeah. And and I, he was so low key about it, kind of like, I don't know, I didn't do it. I wasn't doing anything. Like if you ever hear Romero, he'll, yes. he'll rarely cop to having any social commentary in his films, but it's in there. Like there's of no denying oh, you that. You can't it's miss it. it. You definitely yeah. can't miss it. But he won't really own up to it. He, maybe he wants to normalize it. But I, I think it's interesting that he broke that mold in 68 and then we're still dealing with the same issue in 2019 to some yeah. degree, you know? Well, right. and I think back to your point though about how this documentary drove that point home. But I think another thing that really hit me that I hadn't thought of before, you know, was how a movie like Get Out was an opportunity for a black protagonist to be viewed by uh, you know an audience that had a fair number of white people in it. And they were empathizing with him in the same way that black yeah. audiences have always been and many people of color have ha you know had to <laughs> you know deal with the fact that there's nobody representing them on screen but they empathize with these characters they they still care and they still and I think that drives home that bigger point and proves just how dumb that idea was at its core unless you're a sociopath you're going to empathize with a human being who's struggling with a, a situation when it, you know it's well written characters yeah. and in a in a strong narrative, you're going to care. If you don't, yeah, maybe you need some therapy. I don't know, but I'm just saying that I feel like <laughs> most people, because all I know is, you know, I'm a white guy, and by the end of that, I was scared of white people, and I was hope I was I was all down for Chris smashing skulls. I didn't care. So I, I right. guess I'm just saying that I, I think it's sad that that's even a th you know I mean like I, I I I get what they're saying. They're like, look. It's always been this way that we are, we're empathizing with people who don't represent us necessarily. And, yeah. and, you know, and I think and I agree with that. And I think, honestly, that is one of the strongest points that this documentary makes uh, to me. Yeah, anyway. well, Kumail Nanjiani did a thing. I think it was two Oscars ago. 
I think, and then maybe it was also in, in relation to Get Out and Black Panther, but he he kind of said, white people are wondering, how am I going to relate to this guy? He's like, look, I've been doing it my whole life. I think you'll yeah. figure it out. It's not that hard. Some of my favorite movies are movies by straight white dudes about straight white dudes. Now straight white dudes can watch movies starring me and you relate to that. It's not that hard. I've done it my whole life. The industry has to become sincerely curious about the human essence that has become invisible behind stereotypes. I remember going to see Wonder Woman sitting in the theater and hearing women cry. This big action extravaganza and something clicked. I'll say it. This is what white men feel all the time. And all these women are having this experience for the first time. Imagine it's going to be the same thing when people go and see Black Panther. There's so many movies from different points of view that are making a ton of money. Don't do it because it's better for society and representation, even though it is. Do it because you'll get rich. You'll get that promotion, right? And then it's interesting also noting that Ashley said, but then when she did get that opportunity to see herself on screen, it affected her so much more deeply. Like that's the other side of that coin, you know, and I won't get into it too much because people don't even like that. I talked about it anywhere, but I had that experience with Aquaman. Like it was like, it's pretty crazy. I, to a larger extent with, with Moana, I was like crying the entire time through Moana. Cause Mm -hmm. I was like, my kids are going to have this thing, you know, like it's, it, it, it has a huge impact on you. I think seeing it for the first time. Yeah. And I mean, and, and I think that's, that really is the point, right? That it, it hopefully will get to a level. I don't want to say that you'll take it for granted, <laughs> but that, that, that for it to be normal. Yeah. But so it's, it's a normal thing. It's like, you know, you wouldn't even, you know, but I think it's a, it's a weird thing. Cause on one hand, it's great that it's appreciated, but then on the yeah. other hand, it, it should become so normal that we take it for granted. That it just and is. Again, for people who are worried about like a takeover of the cinema, that's not going to happen. Number one. Number two, I'm not advocating that all movies should be filled with brown people in a token way. I'm just saying let it reflect the world we live in a little yes. bit more and it's it's better, I think. And I think and I think the opportunities given to people of color and minorities that were in women and all these people who hadn't had the opportunities to tell these stories. I think the great thing for us as horror fans, the tethered. Yeah. Yeah. The, the te- okay. That we, we are getting story. All of us are getting told stories, at least even if they're familiar stories at their core in a way we never even considered. Yeah. That that's what excited me the most about the documentary towards the end. Uh, when they mentioned at the end about how, now, maybe, thanks to Jordan Peele, all of those black filmmakers who had a, an original story to tell and were told, no, nobody wants to hear it. Maybe now they'll get a chance and imagine, you know, what's to come. I think that's the most exciting thing is these movies we may have never we may have otherwise never seen that will now get greenlit. I, I think that's probably the most exciting part of it is to see, hey, what else is there in the wings that we've been deprived of? I mean, who knows? Some of these scripts could be 20 years old, 30 years old. Who knows? Um, that just have never been made. And it would be very interesting. It's very interesting to see what what's coming down the pike. All right. So let's go ahead and move into our ratings and reviews for Horror Noir. Josh, what do you got? I think it's a really great selection of interviewees and of content and of movie clips that perfectly complement that and illustrate what they're trying to accomplish with the thesis of the piece. So in that way, it's perfect. It is just kind of a talking heads 
academic piece on the other side. There's not like a strong narrative. It's not a film you're going to watch um, to go on like a fun journey as a movie. But I think if you're interested in cinema history, if you're a cinephile and you really appreciate learning more about the movies, this is a key piece of movie history that has not been told. And it's told in a really digestible way. And I think it's a great introduction to this part of cinema that is often overlooked. So I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10. I say it's a high priority stream. I would say stream it on shutter and I will buy this if it's ever available on Blu-ray. Excellent. Dave, what you got? Uh, I'm right there with Josh. I'm going to say 8.5. Uh, definitely stream it on Shutter, and I will buy it if it ever becomes available as well. Um, it's right in my wheelhouse. I love these kind of movies, and I think this one brings enough new information to the table to make it very interesting for anyone who is interested in uh, you know the history of the cinema um, and looking at it from a from a different perspective as well. I think is is great. So definitely uh, one I think everyone should check out. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with both of you. This documentary is exactly the kind of thing I love. I It reminds me a, a little bit, I think it's because of the aesthetic, it reminds me of this uh, to a degree. There was a documentary that came out in the early 90s, like 1991 called Fear in the Dark. And it's a little shorter than this one. It's only about an hour long, but it had, mm. you know, I guess Ar- Argento and Barker and it had Saul Bass in it and Craven and Carpenter. They're all in it. And mm. and it there was they, they get into a lot of the sort of the academic aspects of horror to a degree. And I, I love that stuff. So uh, for me, I, yay, I'm higher than both of you. I give it a nine. <laughs> nice (laughs) so i'm making up for the us thing so i give it a nine by giving it the same rating you gave us (laughs) well exactly it's at the duality dave can't you see that it's duality two nines so yes i I give it a nine i say absolutely stream it on shutter and uh, pick it up on blu-ray for sure my hope would be is if it ever does get released to blu-ray is that if i had any gripe and it's a totally nitpicky thing is that it's it's pretty short i think it's only like it's less than an hour and a half just like just under so it's a it's a really fast watch it's it doesn't it flies by and i was left and this is a good thing i was left wanting more so my hope would be if they ever do put out blu-ray we might get a whole lot of you know extras that weren't included in that final presentation but yeah i totally say get it uh, if it's on Blu-ray, definitely stream it on Shutter. Awesome. Well, anybody can go to Shutter.com and get a seven-day free trial. But why do that? Because to try Shutter free for thirty days, go to Shutter.com and use promo code HMP. Yes, that's right. Try Shutter free for thirty days. Go to Shutter.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, and use promo code HMP. And you can extend that normal seven-day free trial to a 30-day free trial and not only enjoy Horror Noir, not only enjoy Joe Bob Briggs' Last Drive-In, the one that just barely came out. Not only that, you'll help out your favorite horror podcast, which we would really appreciate. Absolutely. Yep, definitely. All right. At this point in the show, we are going to have Ashley joining us again to talk about her work on the documentary Horror Noir. I'm so glad that you could join us on the show, Ashley. And I've been a huge fan of your Twitter account for a couple of years. Uh, I love your posts and, and reading your 
your blog posts as well. I feel like your reviews are really strong, but also beyond that, you've really served the horror community by focusing on filmmakers and films and performers that don't always get the attention they deserve. And you're shining a light on a very specific uh, part of the horror community. Um, your site, graveyardshiftsisters.com, uh, is a wonderful resource, I think, for people who are interested in learning more about the horror genre with regard to black female horror. And I think that's such a great area of focus. I'm assuming that's how Phil Nobel Jr. found you to bring you on board Horror Noir as well as the writing staff at Fangoria. But um, what led you to start this site and what was kind of your story before that? Oh, sure. Um, thank you very much for your kind words. And um, yes, that's how Phil found me. That's how I found Phil. Um, and that's how we began um, a working relationship. And now it's a friendship. Mm-hmm. So, and I appreciate him for everything that he's done. And he's been just, that's cool. he's been super supportive of everything that I've been doing. Um, I think the site in retrospect now, after doing this for so long and having the opportunity to produce a documentary about the pretty much the topic I'm uh, tackling, have been tackling for a couple of years. It's a testament to just really just following your passion of just kind of, you know, having unique life experience like mine that are intersectional, that are me being a woman and then me being black and then also me being a horror fan um, and noticing and just kind of having this observation of just kind of noticing kind of my invisibility um, and the underrepresentation and people not acknowledging what women of color and black women have done in the genre um, on screen um, and behind the camera more, more specifically. So now you see it, you see more independent um, black female filmmakers um, making horror films. And it's really, and it's, you know, obviously you really have to look for that. And I'm trying right. to make this website, something that's, you know, the, the, one of the best go-to places to go first. And you're going to see kind of a, a wealth of um, these women creating these horror films. So uh, I think all of that is it's really about just kind of following your passion about, you know, just just being persistent about it. I didn't obviously I didn't start this site because I wanted, you know, all these accolades. I started it because I was a horror fan who really wanted to explore what I wasn't seeing when I was listening to podcasts, when I was reading other websites, when I was doing all of these different um things as, par- as, as far as being an active horror fan. So that's what I was doing kind of before Grey Grey Your Sister started, just kind of getting back into the community after I had graduated college. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So did Phil come to you with the idea of horror noir or was that something you pitched? How did that all transpire? Um, that was all his idea. He actually um, works in Philly. He worked for, for a long time. He worked for a local production company uh, and he had been working um, in video production and, and, and entertainment and on, a, on a certain level for like so many years and for and up to the point where he in his job position had the clout to kind of pitch ideas that he thought would be um, good for the company that he was working for. And, you know, after Get Out came out, it was kind of, he was really jazzed about like what he was seeing. He felt like he was seeing something that was really going to make an impact on the entertainment industry. And it was black and it it was, you know, it was by a black creator with a black protagonist and it was a horror film. And so, you know, doing all this horror noir press, I'm hearing him saying, oh, after he saw Get Out, he was like, oh, I have to talk to Ashley. And so, you know, I had no idea. I mean, I had ideas of like, oh, like literally 
maybe four years prior to that, I thought in my head while I was walking my dog one morning, oh, it would be really great to have a documentary where we talk to these Black performers who have been in these horror films. That was literally just this straight idea I had that I just never even thought of, you know, really fully fleshing out. So um, he came up with this idea about a documentary about Black horror because of my website, which is still crazy to me. I have a hard time taking even the adequate um, amount of credit I should for Heart Noir. <laughs> it's so difficult, but um, yeah, I mean, it was really, you know, him seeing, oh, there's a book about this entire history. And I know this because Ashley found this book and has been um, kind of un unraveling it exhaustively on her site with, you know, different blog mm -hmm. posts and things like that. So yeah, I mean, with him knowing that there was a history to be told and then the get out kind of being our in as far as, you know, pitching it and getting people's, you know, understanding that get out didn't happen in a bubble. That is a, it's a part of what's happened before and what's definitely going to happen um, in the future now, even presently more so. So, and he invited me to lunch and we started kind of talking about it. And I was like, yeah, I'm on, I'm totally on board for this, having no video production experience ever. So <laughs> very little. So, okay. So I work in documentary as my full-time job. And so as I'm watching it and knowing that you're a producer and knowing your work beforehand, before I saw the film thinking, okay, so if I was directing this or I'm producing this and I know Ashley's on board as a writer and a producer, I would be using you to kind of like plug up all our holes and fill up all our gaps in post-production, like going in and interviewing all of the filmmakers and saying, okay, well, they said this thing that's interesting, but that's going to take more context for the audience to understand, you know, what they're referring to, or it's important to set up this idea before, we hear, you know, this filmmaker or actress say this this comment, and I and I wonder, and I, you know, I'm I'm projecting a lot here, but I'm wondering, <laughs> uh, is that true? Is that is that kind of how your role in the film evolved? Like, okay, you're you're kind of making sure that the the narrative is there um, because you have such a wealth of information in your background. You hit it right on the nail. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> as far as being the person on it, like day to day, like being a part of pre-production and post-production, having a, yeah, a direct active role, you know, five days a week, 40 plus hours a week. Um, yeah. That was all me. And it was a lot of responsibility, yeah. but honestly, I mean, it was really as an introvert, the only really anxiety I had was doing all of those interviews and having to sit across <laughs> from like these major stars and people I've watched on television for the past 20, 30 years. I mean, that was yeah. the only thing that was like really exhausting and anxiety inducing. And like also trying to kind of be a shepherd in a way where people veer off in conversation. I'm just like, can you stick to the topic, please? Like that was difficult. Um, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, the best part for me was like being in an editing room. I could, I would still, I would be in an editing room to this day if I could. I love <laughs> that little enclave where I could mm. just be a puppet and sit with the editor and be like, okay, use this scene because this scene goes perfect with this, with the sound bite, you know? So stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was all me and it was all like, you know, having to come off of like all of the knowledge I've pretty much attained throughout my entire life about these particular films and like, you know, filling in any gaps and any um, sources that we, that may, you know, we had a big spreadsheet. Um, just to make sure that our, just to make sure that we cited all of our sources and things like that. So yeah, I mean, it was a very it was a whole bunch of puzzle pieces that um, I was integral in putting together, and I'm really happy that I had the support I had um, on staff. I imagine you really knew what academics you wanted to bring on board to come and talk about 
the films. I know Tana and Reeve do, and you know each other, and she's someone that we re- really highly respect on the show as well. Did you know kind of like, okay, like I, I know that we have to have this person talking about this topic. Picking who to talk to, that was a lot of... Uh... That was that was a lot of me as well. And it was me and Phil, but also a lot of me, like knowing how to diversify our audience. But he also um, mm. suggested a lot of other people as well. You know, unfortunately, we couldn't get like everyone because, um, you know, because uh, we, we, we did shoot in Los Angeles. So location was big and our budget was tight. So, I mean, we, we could only do but so much. And it, and it really was um, all about the convenience of the person already being in the Southern California area. And we're able to, we were right. able to like, you know, um, if you were in driving distance, that was, you know, really indicative on whether we could get you there or not on, <laughs> on, our, on our shooting schedules. I mean, that's how production yeah. works. Like, is you know, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are like, why didn't you get this person? Why did you get that person? Like, well, that's it's really the nature of the beast. It's like, it's really about everything aligning perfectly with that person's because there's there are people that i really wanted in this documentary but for whatever reason they were on the east coast for the summer or they lived in the midwest so you know there's only but so much we could do of course i knew um the academics i had known about tanana reeve and her work for a very very long time i mean she has and i she she always reiterates this now i mean in one of her latest essays where she's talking about us she talked about this never left my brain where i've and i read it years ago she wrote it before and she, cause she had been pitching, you know, ideas, you know, her books have, you know, been adapted or there's, they've gained interest, um, of certain people in the business and to right. get them to be made into films. And so, you know, years ago she wrote this, um, essay when she was in a pitch meeting uh, and, you know, someone, someone asked her, you know, well, do the characters have to be black? And, you know, so all yeah. of these, like, all of these <laughs> struggles she had as a black creative who wanted to make horror films now, I mean, I think she would agree with post get out, things are a little bit easier not necessarily that things things are just going to happen for her and all these other black creatives overnight it's the idea that get out gives executives like a frame of reference in order to, to right. order to make this the idea of black protagonists in mainstream horror accessible and, and their original ideas now. yeah yeah exactly so um i knew i've been reading her work for a very very long time um i love critical essays i love nonfiction. i love you know people's insights into films so i've been reading her stuff for a while so of course i knew her and one of my first interviews i think no I th- my first interview was Dr. Robin Armin's Coleman because I read her book and loved it. And I just reached out to her and, mm. you know, it was, it gave me the confidence to continue to kind of, you know, interview people and to understand, you know, um, I have my own way of approaching um, interviews when I do like basic Q and A. So, I mean, I, it was great to have that relationship with her years before I, we even knew there was going to be a horror noir documentary. Um, and, you know, and just because uh, I always love the academic space. And I think because my work leans towards academic, there were academics like that would come to me that were doing similar work. So we were able to build those relationships. And I knew that they were um, great people to talk to. What were the most painful films to leave out of the story? Because there are probably a lot that didn't necessarily fit your thesis or maybe didn't do you think feel like were good representations. And I thought, I thought you handled those really well. Like you talked about, you know, the exploitation ear. Uh, you know, it doesn't have a perfect record or whatever. I thought you handled that stuff really well, or the token characters. I felt like you handled that really well. But were there films that you really wanted to include that there just wasn't time for? A few. I mean, yeah, the first things first, it was important to hit all of the main themes and the points throughout each decade, essentially, or through mm-hmm. or kind of throughout the history. So I'm glad we're able to at least hit those notes. 
But um, yeah. it all pointed to like, you know, looking at the footage and looking at the transcripts of looking at what we had and then kind of framing a, a story around it. So there were certain films that people just didn't speak to just because they it just didn't get to, we just didn't get to that point. I did guess you show I them say, like a little reel of did you show them like a little <laughs> reel of films that they were reacting to? That seemed like that was the case. Yeah, there, we, I, I did put a reel together with the um with the editor before we that's really uh, cool. That's such yeah, a good idea. Yeah, before we started our first shoot, so I, di- I definitely did that. But I think, I, and I don't know when, even when I did my um, interview, it didn't come up, and I wish it would, because I would have, because I, I kind of have a lot to say about you know these mainstream hip hop artists and these horror films in like the '90s and early mm-hmm. 2000s. Um, I, I kind of have a little bit to say about that. I would have liked to have delved into that <laughs> a little bit deeper, but not, but not everyone else really did. I know um, Dr. Coleman, like that's that's a big chunk of her book, like she did the work and didn't watch those hip hop um, horror films. And then also Mark H Harris, who does black horror movies.com. He, he was doing the Lord's work when it comes to black <laughs> horror, because he he's watching, he's like a one man quest of watching every single horror movie with a black character and i mean wow. from the really good to the terrible and i'm just like and he and he writes about it and i'm just so amazed at that commitment because like i there are some films i, I mean now when i'm when i'm when i have a little bit more leisure time now like i'll watch like um bloods versus wolves and i watch crips and vamps and all those movies and they're really really bad which is why not a lot of people like know about them or watch them but like mark will watch these movies and like you know put together really really poignant but really funny um and honest uh, movie reviews on them so yeah i mean so those are the kind of films that i think deserve a little bit more of a deep dive and get into them like why are they bad like what is the political economy with them like because you know you're talking about these real independent filmmakers who are just you know just kind of throwing a film together a la tyler perry but with less of a budget <laughs> and you well, know, the sequel, when you do the horror noir sequel that can be the topic there yeah or you're always welcome to come talk about hip hop stars in horror movies on the show. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, I was thinking that. that. I was like, if you need a platform, <laughs> seriously. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what are just a couple of the horror movies that got you, like, as a fan? Like, what what got you into horror as a genre? Uh, yeah, as a child of the '80s, so the slashers, the big ones, so Jason, Freddy, specifically Freddy, um, you know, those lips of memories you have from mm-hmm. when you're really little. So I remember seeing the New Line Cinema logo because like on, on television, like all the time, because I, I watched television a lot. Like it, it was one of those things like, you know, the television was my babysitter for the most part. So mm-hmm. I have a lot of memories of that. And also just VHS tape. So your Hellraisers, all that, all, all those kind of like bigger mainstream horror films or anything that kind of came on HBO during the 80s as well, like the stuff and like all, all those kinds of, um. so kind of the myriad of like what you saw in the 80s is where the kind of the genesis of what I grew up on. And also kind of the kind of quote unquote family friendly type of type of slightly horror films like Beetlejuice um, and things like that. And Ghostbusters as well. That's when mom took me to go see Ghostbusters too when I was a kid. So, you know, so that's the, those are kind of horror movies that kind of informed my interest in horror and then going even deeper which uh is your favorite nightmare film (laughs) (laughs) oh that's hard um as a personal soul food favorite Mm -hmm. it's nightmare four um more of the intellectual i have to be you know a little bit more of a more diplomatic about it it would be west craven's nightmare okay that's cool 
Yeah, I, uh, I'll do the obnoxious name drop thing. We've had Lisa Wilcox on my other show twice. Nice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she's fantastic. She was awesome. And, and I do love that in your review, without giving anything away, because people need to go to GraveyardShiftSisters.com and check out her review of us. It is fantastic. And again, I'm not just blowing smoke. It is really great. Uh, she, I love that you reference that you hear a little Brian May's composition from Freddie's Dead, The Final Nightmare. I was like, she's got to be a fan. If she's if she's catching that stuff, that, that she is a fan. <laughs> I totally do. I hear it. Yeah, I I hear those melodies. Like I know I know exactly which scene I think of when I when I've heard when I've saw when I was watching us. So I was yeah. just like, wait a minute, this sounds. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I just wanted to say one of one of my favorite. Uh, sub sub genres i guess are documentaries about film uh, you know film history and just uh, you know that that take a look at movies in general so i really did i i, I really enjoyed horror noir um and the fact that it goes all the way back obviously with birth of a nation and looking at it as that was a horror film for a lot of people and you could certainly see why with what that movie addressed and um the fact that the president of the united states came out and supported it the first time sort of forced me to put myself in a place of boy how would you how would you like to be walking around with this movie out there um you know this it's it's so seminal in 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 the history of cinema and then also so terrible i mean it's it's really is one of those movies you just can't you can't appreciate the art of it anymore because of what it uh what it addresses and i also absolutely love the fact that there was a nice nice little section dedicated to blackula which for <laughs> me didn't even belong in the quote-unquote exploitation. because for me i mean you hear blackula and you think it's going to be a comedy it's yeah. just sort of a natural reaction there is no comedy in that movie that is a scary frightening vampire film that i think might turn a lot of people off from the title but i'd say all the time it's one of if I were to make a list of my top 10 vampire movies, that one would probably be, it'd be close to the top five because it is so well made. You have such a, a great performance uh, by William Marshall as the, uh, as the vampire. And I absolutely love the, the section at the end of the movie where they sort of dispel the whole myth of that. Well, white audiences won't go to see a movie if there's a black protagonist because that always struck me as bs and i don't know how they could have put numbers together for that other than because it's hollywood's marketing i think that sort of pushes people to accept that but you go to a movie like get out um and and like us and all you need are smart well-written characters that you can relate to and originality which is something that i think is scaring hollywood even nowadays because of all the remakes and and uh sequels that are coming out so i just wanted to say kudos i thought it was a, a tremendous documentary and i'm hoping at some point it gets released on uh, on dvd or blu-ray because i'll be picking it up well yeah thank you so much um yeah you, those are some really great points um i don't even know where to start you, you made so many <laughs> yeah, i'm points. sorry i just sort of rambled no, on. It's fine. <laughs> no that's fine i ramble all the time <laughs> all right well ashley thank you so much for letting us talk to you a little bit more about uh, your film and your website and uh we really appreciate you having having you on this episode thank you for having me All right, so thanks again to Ashley Blackwell for that wonderful conversation about horror noir, her involvement with that project. We highly recommend you check it out and you can find all of Ashley's contact information on the show notes for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com. Now, we are going to go into our 
us spoiler filled discussion. So I cannot stress this enough that if you have yet to see us, please do not continue listening. Pause here, go see the movie and come back. Okay. You've been warned. Let's get to it. Do we just tell the audience, leave now? For love of God, how come you haven't seen it yet? Get out. Get out. Yeah. Get out. Go see us. <laughs> yeah, stop listening to us. Yes. So anybody listening again, if you haven't seen it yet, please pause because we're now about to spoil us. Okay. So first off, I'm going to hit the most superficial thing. Uh, as the co-host of Retro Movie Geek, I have to acknowledge immediately when I saw VHS tapes in, uh, on either side of the TV during that Hands Across <laughs> America, which by the way, uh, re-watching that, and I actually went and found the uh, music video that went along with the original Hands Across America. Peel's right. That is creepy. There's something very culty about the whole thing. <laughs> there, and really, I, there really is. It, it's is almost, it really feels very, it's cult. It's you like really a cult. Like exactly. It's a cult thing as you're watching that <laughs> commercial. Is, you, I yeah. didn't feel that way in 86, but you're watching it now and you feel that. Well, it's because you were in the cult at the time. So, of course, you're not going to feel it, right? But it, well, he left out some true. of the weirdest imagery in it, too, because he. I had seen in an interview that he had gotten it from an MTV ad for Hands Across America. So I just Googled MTV Hands Across America, and it starts out with two really weird images, one of like a thousand eyeballs <laughs> staring at you, and then one with a, bun- then a bunch of fingers like wiggling. Wow. And I thought, Wow, that's really strange. Yeah. Like that feels like a horror intro. Yeah. He felt that was too far. The audience couldn't handle that, so he left that part <laughs> out. But I don't know. I'm assuming did everybody catch the titles of those those VHS tapes? Yes. Oh, yes. I loved it. I was I, I okay. So what did you catch? I caught the man with two brains. That's genius. Yeah, Chud was definitely a clue. To yes, what we're a about big to one. See. Yeah. <laughs> what what else the did you Goonies, catch? Which is yep. referenced in a line later when she says it's our time up there. I thought that was funny. And Nightmare on Elm Street. Of course. His, one of his favorites, right? So that was that was fantastic. There was one written by hand that I couldn't make out. Yeah, I couldn't make that one out either. I was I was squinting. I was actually trying to make that one out. <laughs> but then the I one I didn't that. understand was the right stuff. I thought, what would the right stuff have to do with this film? I was I couldn't figure that out. Hmm. hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we all paused on that one. We we're like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I got I, nothing. I, can't I got nothing. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that one. Yeah. So in terms of the Nightmare on Elm Street to uh, Joel and Ashley, who are the, apparently the Nightmare on Elm Street aficionados amongst us, what are the elements from that film that you see reflected in a movie like this? Ashley, go for it, and then I'll pipe in. So, yeah, I mentioned earlier um, hearing a little bit of the me- melodic sounds from um, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. And also, for me, the thing that stands out the most for me is when... Um, Adelaide is going down into this sort of a uh, tunnel place. So there's there's a like few a scenes. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the downstairs hallway kind of looks reminiscent of when Nancy goes down the actual hallway in the school in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. And then kind of the whole boiler room kind of a scene that kind of looks like something from Freddy's Dead where he's kind of taunting Carlos. And then there's another scene where she's oh, where she goes down to another kind of level and she opens the door. And that literally looks like the time when they open the door in um, Dream War when mm. it's the four of them that are left and you kind of the cinematography in that and kind of the the steel uh, walls it really looked like one of those final showdowns in the climax and that scene too so i mean those were like the references that really stood out for me interesting i wondered if it had to do with just childhood trauma if that was just kind of uh, you know one of the elements as well i don't know but i, I, I i'm not an aficionado on that right now the one thing that i thought of is i had seen an interview with jordan peele 
from Rotten Tomatoes where they were asking him to talk about kind of like tentpole horror or like landmark horror films throughout the ages. So he started out with like Rear Window and Psycho and then Night of the Living Dead. And he was kind of going through uh, important films, I guess, to him uh, throughout the years. And at one point he was talking about 80 slashers and he was saying how those films are told through the point of view of the bad guy. And I thought, oh, I wonder if maybe that's where A Nightmare on Elm Street came into play is it's 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 kind of like the uh the villain is your hero in a way you know and i think another obvious sort of i mean this is probably a little bit more superficial but the fact that pluto has been burned pretty severely mm-hmm. uh and, mm-hmm. and 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 the fact that and this is probably a big stretch but there was something about the moment when they now of course they see the family outside of the house so that's like a thing that's there but if you remember relatively early on the original nightmare on elm street when they're all together nancy tina rod and glenn and they go outside you know because they, they they think they've heard something or whatever and there was something about that just at night and you got the moonlight and you know that whole vibe of it i i kind of had that sense uh but what were you gonna say i heard somebody start to we were just laughing at uh, you. Oh, okay. I, 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 maybe that was my paranoia kicking in. I just assumed that. All right. <laughs> so, I, I, but anyway, I, again, that might be a bit of a stretch, but those are the kind of things that jumped out at me as well. So actually, yours were great. Those were fantastic. I didn't even think about those. No, I didn't think about yours either. So okay. that was pretty cool. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, I, I think there was also moments too where I thought of, I was reminded of like Hills Have Eyes. Because I thought about the fa- the two families, the, the feral sort of wild family sort of vibe yeah. with, versus the civilized family. The civilized now has to mm-hmm. go and become, you know, like the ones that they're battling against. And they, you know, in the end, are they any better? Are they any different? Oh, yeah. I, I know I had that sense to it. Um, and obviously, and I think one of the big spoilers besides the reveal at the end, which I'm assuming at some point we'll get to, is the fact that this goes from... I, I love the way it, it sort of telescopes out. You start off with, you said the invasion film, you, you start off with, it's this only happening to this family, right? But then, uh-oh, wait a minute. No, holy crap. It's also happening to that family. And then we're, yeah. we're sitting in front of a TV and realizing, no, this is like full on zombie apocalypse territory. Yeah, which is a little Night of the Living Dead, yes, right? Like totally. it feels right. very contained exactly. at first. And then, yeah. You know. Yeah. But the fact that in the, it's it just, I loved how, because I think that idea of how these things would actually happen, right? You're at first going to totally think it's just something happening to you. It's going to be you, your your family, your life. Your, and then, oh, wait, no, it's maybe my neighbor. Uh, especially when it feels so specific, right? Yes. Like it's this. This is a mere image of you. You yeah. that, that was that was a startling moment as a viewer too. Like, oh, well, they have doppelgangers as well. You yes. Know? And oh yeah. And, and the way that whole thing played out because you didn't see. I don't know about you guys, but that completely <laughs> caught me out of left field. I didn't even remotely see that coming. No, I mean, I, I maybe no, I imagined that Lupita's character would show up or something, but I definitely didn't see another family doppelganger family show up no. i didn't think that was possible they did hint to it a little bit at the beginning when when they showed again just the the sort of attention to detail when as they're driving down to the beach and they see that body being loaded up onto the under the ambulance and then the little boy i'm pretty sure they're the same people um that he saw uh the guy standing there bleeding on the beach yeah he was the, the jeremiah was 11, the 11 guy yeah. yeah exactly and i got the feeling that Okay, that that these are sort of the, the hint to it, um, that it maybe is is extending out a lot further than uh, than just the one family. Um, not that I put that together at that point, mind you. I'd, again, uh, having only seen it once, I just sort of went along for the ride, 
So this is uh, kind of interesting listening to, to uh, people who have seen it more than once sort of dissect it a little bit. Um, but I was thrown by that the whole um, groups of doppelgangers as well, and especially by what they were doing. I know that it somehow was a reference to what we saw at the beginning of the film, um, you know, all the hand holding and, and stretching across. Um, but I didn't guess as to as to how until the the very last few minutes. Yeah, there's so much here to talk about. It's almost difficult it to really is actually now that we started this how to approach it because there's <laughs> and every symbol has seems to have like three or four different layers as well. Because as Dave's talking about them, I'm like, well, okay, so there's the paper doll thing. There's the choice of scissors as a weapon, which can stand in for severing the tether. But it's also like there's so many different ways to approach each of these elements. I don't not quite sure what I want to tackle. I think for me, the, because I was so focused on the meaning, I guess that has ended up being the most important element of the film to me. Cause I think there is, I guess Jordan Peele has said that this isn't about race, which surprises me. Cause I think there are, cause I've also heard him talk about the prison industrial complex and about privilege. And, and I think both of those things could definitely be tied to race without much effort, you know, but, I, but it's been interesting hearing him talk about it because he talks about himself as someone who's had privilege. You know, he raised in a middle class home. He has a white mother. And I, again, as a biracial person with similar circumstances, I can kind of relate to that. And it's interesting to think about the privilege all of us have as Americans. But then there's this other America below the surface in our prisons um, you know, seeking asylum, not to get too political. I don't want to, you know, get super political, but the idea of the people who are marginalized in society and how we kind of keep them in the shadows and we don't address them. And, you know, and I think that is really what's at the heart of this film. If I had to choose one meaning, which I don't think there is just one meaning, but that to me is the overpowering idea, which again, I think you can also make a huge case for slavery being tied into that as well. But for me, that's the overriding idea is the haves versus the have nots and how we as a, as a culture keep, you know, those people out of the light, so to speak. Yeah, that's so interesting that you say that because I, I agree there is definitely not one way of interpreting this film. And I think everyone's um, theories and connecting the dots, I think they're all accurate. The one thing I haven't really seen a lot of people touch on yet is this idea, you know, and obviously I think this is a plot point that Peel did, like, you know, who are these doppelgangers and what, you know, because I think red mentions like later on in the film like there's some sort of government experiment going awry and they were left there they were pretty much abandoned there so no one's really getting into maybe that's maybe too much to wrap their head around like i'm kind of a mild conspiracy theorist so all this stuff really (laughs) fascinates me and terrifies me at the same time it's just like well wait a minute why are we not talking about this idea that these people were pretty much created kind of like the whole bunny symbolism about like how bunnies are cloned and things like that like you know who are who are these shadow people who are these shadow government people so to speak and like what what is this whole experiment about i mean and there's kind of like i'm sorry no please go like um (laughs) like some of the dialogue like early like when they were in the car the daughter zora she's like did you know that the government pu- puts fluoride right. in the water to brain control, like mind control people? So I kind of get the feeling that's like leaning towards that. Yeah. And then I, also I agree, like, yeah. 
Yeah, and also like there's another line, if I said correctly, that Red says when one of the family members is like, who are you? What are you guys? And she's like, we are Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which what? OK, so what my response to that then, Ash and Ashley, is like I would say slavery is this government sanctioned separation of people, the, the one group of people not seen as full people. And they and they weren't given the same rights. They weren't given the same food. They weren't given the same lifestyle. And I, I feel like I don't know. That's one reading, I guess I have. for that. I, I didn't necessarily go in the sci fi territory with it. <laughs> But I think, Ashley, I mean, your film, Horror Noir, has an excellent section about experimentation. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, Blackenstein, those are films that were lackluster in quality and maybe even story, but they are centered around medical experimentation on black males. So you couldn't help but notice those two things coming together and kind of converging. This could be a good chance to try out that serum. No, you can't try that serum on a human. That's not right. Since blacks were brought here during slavery, we were treated as lab rats and for, for various different medical purposes. And it treated us as inhuman, as we were seen. And so you see a lot of that even today with movies like Get Out. Why us? Huh. Why black people? Also, The Girl with All the Gifts and even The First Purge. Should you choose to actively participate, we'll implant a tracking device. After that, you'll be all set, as they say, to purge. It's an observation, and it's definitely something that consistently kind of pops up every now and then mm-hmm. um, in horror, especially when you're um, dealing with kind of um, like, and I know we didn't get around to it, but like, well, no, you do see clips of it, but like the thing with two heads, like all of these different movies from yeah. like the 70s on until today, it's the idea of experimentation that's tied into slavery. And those are, I mean, I, we, we'll be here all night talking about um, <laughs> what was, um, what kind of scientific experiments were um conducted on enslaved Africans for the quote-unquote uh, good of um, medicine. So, um, right. yeah, this is, it's all connected. Yeah, that's interesting. The prison industrial complex was supposedly like created by businesses and government to make money and control populations, certain populations, by imprisoning people, right? And not only were they able to deal, in quotes, with areas of the of the country where they thought people were might be causing them trouble but they could also make a lot of money by imprisoning them so i don't know i thought i think all that's interesting i think all that i feel like is reflected in not only the subtext but also in kind of the sci-fi plot of this movie Hmm. yeah it's uh i think you said it already i feel like there's so many different angles one could take with this movie that we could literally be here for three plus hours, just, just, just <laughs> serious. I mean, I just, the more like yeah. you're saying all this stuff and I'm thinking, well, yeah. And then, and then what about this? And it's, it, it is, I, I can't get over how many layers there are to this movie potentially. I mean, there, and who knows, maybe Jordan Peele's attitude is, yeah, no, actually I really intended it just to be a straight up horror flick. I don't know. You guys are reading into it how you want to, but, <laughs> but yeah. well, I, I don't think that could be possible. No, I know on. that would be funny though. If that was his reaction, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Like, do you take the film at face value as, you know, or do you take it allegorically or both? And and if I think you're going to derive completely different meanings from it, <laughs> depending on how you're looking at it, I think. Well, let me ask you something, because if you 
do take it literally. This is where I was having my biggest conflict because part yeah. of me wanted to take it literally. And then the other part of me said, no, you got to take it allegorically because as soon as I start going down the more literal path, I say to myself things like, okay, well, where, where the hell did they get all the jumpsuits? You know what I mean? Like I start doing that annoying yeah. thing, which yeah. is, I feel like it's yeah. petty. And it's like, no, 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 that doesn't matter. Who cares? That's stupid. Or, you know, how, you, I, I heard somebody on one review. I thought this was brilliant. He said, you know what? Think of the Twilight Zone. Do they ever explain how the hell that little gremlin stands on the end of the plane with William Shatner? <laughs> no, they don't. Hey, he would have gotten blown off, but nobody ever questions that, right? They're okay with that. But then why is it we get into a movie like us and we immediately go, well, how did they get all the jumpsuits? But <laughs> but that being said, that being said, the one part, and please, so I just feel like I'm so dense. I'm, I have I feel like I've created this bizarro puzzle in my head that is just driving me nuts trying to figure this out. Okay. It, anybody that's listening to this point said, I don't care about spoilers. Just in case, this is literally the ending of the movie and I'm giving you your final warning. Okay. So the reveal that Red and Adelaide switched places, that that was the, at the end of the day, the quote unquote villain has been our protagonist the whole time and, and yada, yada, yada. But here's my question. And this is so stupid and petty, but I just can't get past it. <laughs> the people above ground, right? Their behaviors, their actions were being mimicked by the people underground. Like, so theoretically, right. the idea being that the people underground were, you know, were copying them and they were, you know, tethered. Hence why when um, uh, the dad, you know, when Duke's character hits himself in the head, you know, causes his doppelganger to get knocked back, you know, the whole thing. But how then, <laughs> if the real Adelaide is the one who's downstairs, and red, the real red, is upstairs. The tethered with the the, the so called soulless one is upstairs. Then presumably, shouldn't she have been controlled by the real Adelaide underneath, or is it something to do with one being above ground and one being? Because this is where I feel like if you stick yes. to the allegory piece, I think it's above and 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 below is more, more I, than is tethered versus not be. tethered. You know what I mean? Right. And and I think what's what's really interesting about that reveal at the end is it shows that perhaps these people down below would have been fine had they been mm. yes. accepted into yeah. society. Yeah, that's you know, that, that um, and you, you just see that sort of look she gives after realizing all of this, she just goes, oh, well, you know, that this is now her life. And yes. you you accept that, that, that these people are not the other people. And that's a major, major point, I think, in the film. And I think that's why I love that reveal at the yes. end. It's very twisty and turning but i thought it was great and i think it really spoke to uh, one of the main messages of the movie well and also how about the fact that she that i might one of my other favorite moments is when she finds her son she finds jason and she says to you know him it's okay it, it's all going to be like it was it's like yes. how could it possibly be like it was <laughs> how, but but to that bigger meaning of everything right isn't that what often happens right that, you know, we we have these experiences trauma as a society and we and we do want to forget we don't want to remember these awful things that have happened and so we got oh no, no, no let's just everything we just get back the way it was it'll be fine uh, you know cut to shot of actual hands across america with all the untethered but Oh, brilliant. Okay, you guys touched on like seven things I want to just really, <laughs> I'll try to do it very quickly. Okay. Um, because I think, Joel, I think you you brought up one of the most important things for me about what the film is saying is the idea that, um, and, and I guess Dave clarified it, that given the opportunity, they could be like us, Got right? It. I think, again, that's reflective of the way we treat people in poverty, the way we treat asylum seekers, the way we treat people in prison. Um, and I just saw an interesting Ted talk recently 
by this guy, Rutger Bregman. He's a Dutch economics historian. And he got kind of famous recently because he went to this big billionaires conference where it's a lot of liberal folks talking about ways they can change the world for the better and different uh, charity type things they can do to change the world. And he said, actually, if you, all of you would just stop dodging your taxes, then you could probably solve a lot of the world's problems. And people and then were not they kicked him out. And they kicked him out. Exactly. No, they did. And, oh, but God, um, he's become kind of a low level celebrity because of that, you know, like kind of a talking truth to power moment. And, uh, but he had a Ted talk in 2017 that I found. It was really fascinating where the basic premise of his TED talk is poverty isn't a lack of character. It's a lack of cash. And he talks about attempts to do all these different programs with people who are suffering from poverty with education and all these other things. And he said, that the truth is, is like the effects of having to work so hard for everything you have, the effects of not sleeping as well, the effects of not being able to afford healthy food, the f- like those are all directly economic issues and giving someone money actually does fix those things. And it was, and, and he's saying where, where these other programs, social programs sometimes fail. And I thought, I mean, it's a very complex issue that I don't pretend to know anything about, but I think it's interesting in light of this film, because I think it speaks to that idea that, um, given opportunity, these other people could thrive, you know, and we see that with Adelaide's character. She's able to thrive, you know, uh, given that opportunity. So, well, thank you all for explaining that because now that does, now that I look at it in that light, it makes total sense. But for some reason I was struggling with that issue. Um, but, and I don't know if you guys had any other specific spoiler talk that you wanted to jump into. But one thing I did want to mention, because I would have felt horrible if we didn't, is that uh, Shahadi Wright Joseph and Evan Alex, in my opinion, I don't even know what performance I loved more of theirs as their quote-unquote normal, (laughs) I guess, untethered selves, or the the Pluto and Umbre. I mean, am I the only one thought that Shahadi was just chilling i mean that there were oh, yeah. oh my gosh oh, yeah. i mean she was mm-hmm. terrified i mean honestly i mean obviously red was uh, just uh, uh, over, the scariest uh, the, the scary but, <laughs> right. but there was something right. about her just the the looks and just that the the glee that she was she's gonna chase yeah excitement she's gonna chase down her 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 other self oh oh it was Amazing. Just and, and one amazing. Of the, for me, another one of the really strongest scenes in the movie is when they first are, are find themselves face to face with the doppelgangers and and Red is is relating, you know, uh, the story of her family. You have this strong family here, this strong family unit and relating her family like I got this guy because you married the prince and you have a lovely daughter and I have a monster and I, you know, just sort of it was a very dramatic scene i think Mm -hmm. because you have this a strong family on one end and on the other end these people who are together without even wanting to be like they don't really necessarily want to be a family now they're joining together to to this common cause but she didn't even have anything good to say about any of them yeah and bringing back in the beach boys to what you're saying dave um well i guess i haven't said beach boys yet the beach boys song good vibrations which is one of the songs that plays in the house um, if you listen to the lyrics, I'm just going to read a couple of them. I'm not seeing them. Uh, it says, I love the colorful clothes she wears and the way the Sundance plays upon her hair. 
And then later in another verse, close my eyes and somehow she's closer now. I wonder if those lyrics are supposed to be um, expressing kind of Red's thoughts about wanting to be back on the surface, you know, and thinking about Adelaide and the life she's living that um, Red is missing out on. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. And also, wasn't there a connection between uh, uh, Wilson from the Beach Boys and Charlie Manson? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so you had a wholesale slaughter of a family inside yeah. of a inside of their... there's so much there. It's yeah. like you could talk about this forever. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the the jumpsuits. I thought, well, that has kind of a Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees kind of feel to it too, you know. But then also it works for the prison industrial complex as well. So like, there's all of these dual things which fits the film yes you know, and you have to imagine that the workers down below uh probably would have right. been wearing right. those type of uniforms yeah. I, I mean there obviously were a lot of them i guess <laughs> uh because right. of how it many, could be a part of some needed. big dharma initiative kind of situation to bring it back right. that lost. makes me like this even right. more yeah <laughs> Yeah, which could be connected that. to get out too. the experimentation to get out. There could be some larger thing that exists in the Jordan Peele universe. That is kind of like a Dharma initiative kind of thing. That's interesting. Ash, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I was just saying like, I was like reading up like on red and everything. And people were saying that like with the, like the red jumpsuits and like the one glove, they were trying to pay homage to like Michael Jackson. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. The one glove. I didn't even think about that. Well, so the thriller thing is fascinating too, because again, I don't, I know this is another touchy topic and I don't want to get too deep into, but um, I'm a huge, like Michael Jackson was another like major touchstone in my life from that era. Definitely thriller, that whole album. And Jordan has talked about the duality of Michael Jackson as a person and not to call him a monster. There is that idea of, like I was mentioning with the Freddy Krueger thing, like our hero being the monster, like there's so many times with the Bill Cosby thing, which is an interesting reference, I guess, with regard to this upper class black family, that representation in media used to belong to Bill, you know, the Cosby show. Like we, that, that was kind of the last time we saw a black family presented as just an upper class family and without any commentary, you know, that was just who they were. And it's interesting, like the idea of, our heroes being monsters, right? But even within the thriller music video, you have that duality where he's, it's his video. He's the hero of the video, but then he also turns into a werecat. He also turns into a zombie. Mm-hmm. And even the last shot of that video mirrors one of the last shots of this film, which is turn to the camera and smile, right? Like he is actually the monster. That's, that's how thriller ends. And um, I don't know. That's all so fascinating to me that that exists within the context of this movie as well absolutely what do you guys think about the color choices red is a given right there and then yeah um, right right notice that the family like they were wearing blues and then adelaide was wearing white and then Mm. more towards the end of the movie she was covered in blood interesting she becomes she becomes more and more red yeah and she it's like the rabbit thing i mean the rabbit that you could do a whole essay on just the rabbit elements of this film too right and zora was wearing a shirt early in the movie with a white rabbit on it interesting and then i don't know i kind of know i could go on and on but i kind of noticed like my second viewing like with um what was her name kitty yes like how she was wearing pink and to mm. me, pink kind of symbolizes like beauty, like youthful and like all that stuff. And you know how she was like, oh, I got a little something done, like just a little. 
Yeah. Yes. Right. yes. So I, I don't know. I was just like, yeah, yeah, like I was just noticing like different colors, like how each character was wearing specific colors and how mm. they may have like go with like their personality, their character and all that stuff. That kind of stood out for me. Yeah. I, again, like I would not surprise me if all that was very intentionally color coded in in that way, for sure. Yeah. Heck, even the eating habits too. But the was, eating habits were there. interesting as well, right? She's yeah, she's eating this. Was it? I don't know where I read that. Maybe Actually, it was I think in it was Ashley's. A, it was Ashley's review. Yeah, it was Ashley's review. Ashley, you you talked about the uh, strawberries. It was beautiful to look at. Like I like the red was obviously. I love the locations, you know, again, there's all those ties to the lot. There's the line. Apparently I didn't hear this, but someone else pointed it out. The line reference to lost boys that the father um, of young Adelaide says on the boardwalk, Oh, they're shooting a movie over by the carousel. Oh, I, oh, I didn't even catch that. That's cool. I didn't hear that either, but someone oh, else awesome. told me that. <laughs> so that would have been obviously lost boys being shot at that time period. But yeah. so one other little, conspiracy theory i don't know if it makes sense i've been trying to figure out all day today if it actually makes sense but i think there's a real chance that jason is not J- actually jason but also a double oh, yeah. oh my gosh yes <laughs> that he was replaced yeah. like years uh, years before last time they were at the beach yeah, yeah. i was oh, maybe. looking up on that like i was thinking about myself maybe a year or so before yeah that he he switched Yep. And the idea that Pluto's mouth has been melted shut so he can't talk mm. and he can't, mm. and you know, his mom is saying he gets frustrated, you know, like he can't communicate mm-hmm. what he wants to communicate, right? Like wow. he maybe could talk, but he can't. And there's that whole fire thing where Jason's like, I used to know how to do this, but I like, I feel like I remember how to do this trick, but I can't do it. It, it seems like that instinct is like the kind of thing you would have if you've been living underground mimicking an action but not actually doing an oh, action oh that's true hmm. yeah. that's interesting. and then like interesting. when they were on the beach and he uh everybody else is like playing and everybody, like the twins were like your brother's weird and they're mm-hmm. like and they stepped on like his sandcastle but he was like yeah. it's just a tunnel oh yeah, he's not, dang, he's not that... building up he's building down yeah. right? interesting and he's yeah, also the but... only one that seems to have that moment of recognition at the end of who Adelaide really because is. Because he yeah. realizes, when well, he saw it happen, and we assume that he's maybe just scared that he saw his mom kill someone. But yeah. what if he's realizing, oh, she's like me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and she gives him that little look and that smile, although at first it seems like kind of just a regular, typ- typical cheesy movie villain smile. It might actually be a recognition she knows he's from down there as well. Oh, interesting. That is really you know, interesting. But so th- I think the biggest clue, which I've never really heard people talk about, is he's wearing this werewolf mask, which again, you could reference to po- potentially the werecat werewolf thing in Thriller, but also a werewolf is something that changes what it is. It turns from a, a good person into a monster. And we see him several times. He kind of pulls that over his face at moments where he needs to deal with hmm. those kinds of darker feelings, right? He pu- puts that mask on. Right. Interesting. So, you so kind of, many clues. So many, so many clues. Yeah. <laughs> really amazing. Which reminds me, our good friend Maurice, uh, listener Maurice, has a YouTube channel which I just discovered today that is hilarious. Where he just he's basically it's basically troll reviews where he just says the movie sucks. <laughs> but his review of of us is hilarious, and I want to play that at the end of the show. Oh, great! Um, people will definitely. Uh, 
get that. And um, I'll put a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes for this episode as well. All I have to say is I'm really looking forward to seeing this again because especially this conversation has helped clarify things. So I'm uh, honestly, I could do this for like three or four more hours with the amount of like mental notes I took on the second uh, screening, but I won't, I won't do that to you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I guess we'll wrap up our spoiler filled review. Okay, before we go, we need to give away the Leprechaun digital downloads from our friend Sal Roma. These are the Leprechaun films one through six and the remake. And one lucky winner is going to win that package tonight. Now, in order to qualify for this drawing, you had to go to the comment section the show notes at horrormoviepodcast.com for our Leprechaun episode and tell us what is either your favorite film from the Leprechaun franchise or what your favorite Irish horror film was. So we got a lot of entries, Joel. I'm going to go through and read some of those and to you, and then you can draw our winner. Okay, let's do it. So first we have Jason Strong. He said, it may not be a horror movie per se, but I've got a soft spot in my heart for Darby O'Gill and the Little People. As a youngster, the visual and auditory representation of the Banshee always sent chills running down my spine. As far as more traditional horror fare, I've got two big thumbs up for both The Hollow and The Citadel. Fairly recent films, but equally chilling in different ways. Excellent. Chris Dewey said... My favorite Irish horror movie is probably The Canal. I did not expect much going in, but the movie left me feeling entertained and unsettled. As someone of Irish descent myself, I would love to see more Irish horror in the future. Thanks to this podcast's enthusiastic take on the Leprechaun franchise, I was compelled to DVR Leprechaun and Leprechaun Returns from sci-fi. It led to this nice little exchange with my fiancé. Fiancé. Chris, what are you doing over by the TV? I thought we were heading out soon. (laughs) Me. Um, nothing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Two hours later, fiance from the other room. Chris, why is our DVR currently in the process of recording two movies about leprechauns? <laughs> was that what you were doing earlier? Me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Well done, Chris. Yes. Thank you. Well done. Brett Harrison says another great episode, but why no review for leprechaun in the hood or leprechaun Two: back to the hood. My favorite leprechaun films are leprechaun returns and leprechaun in the hood but I'll watch almost anything with Jennifer Aniston in it. So the original is a guilty pleasure as well. Thanks, Brett. Yep. <laughs> Sam from Snowminton says, I enjoy Leprechaun three and the sequels. I rewatched two through four for the first time since I was a kid. And I'm going to rewatch in the hood for the first time. I've revisited the original on several occasions and I've enjoyed each rewatch. Thank you, Sam. Yep. Absolutely. Maurice Jones says my favorite Irish horror movie is Greta from 2019. Brand new film. Great horror stalker thriller with some surprises and a weird tone. Yeah, I've been wanting to see that one. And yeah, I guess you saw he recommended eight seconds to you. Yes. Yeah. Um, True horror. Rorgasm says, my go-to St. Paddy's Day movie is the 1986 Ken Russell joint Gothic. It's only association with St. Patrick's Day is within my close group of deviant college friends for whom it became an annual ritual to watch while drinking beer and cracking up at the movie's insanity. It may not be a great movie, but it holds a special place in my heart. Yeah, that, that one I haven't seen in a long time, but yeah, I remember I, it being- I like that movie. Yeah, I remember it being very, very different. 
Pastor Matt says, I just finished listening to the gym. Another great job. As I said on Twitter, I'm not a fan of this franchise, although I agree with you that Leprechaun Returns was fun. Matt Sattal just had a little note for us with regard to the Colt Iron. He said, the Colt Iron being dangerous to Leprechauns is pretty much true to lore. Fairies in general can't stand the touch of iron, so it's actually a more faithful weakness than, say, four-leaf clovers, which were made up for the original. Okay, this is from Colin C. said, tough to admit, being such a Warwick fan, but Leprechaun Returns was great for a Leprechaun movie. Luckily, all of us in the UK get to see Mr. Davis every afternoon as t- on TV as a quiz show host. I did not know that. I would love to see that. Huh. Yeah, that's pretty as for cool. the rest of the franchise, abysmal, but in a so bad it's good sort of way. <laughs> I've been trying to think of other Irish horror movies, and the first one that comes to mind is Shrooms. I've not seen Shrooms. Nope. I know Dave has seen it. I have not. One says, you scored Leprechaun Returns higher than the original Leprechaun. I don't think I can trust you guys anymore. <laughs> Come on, Juan. So those are all of the entries for the Leprechaun Returns uh, digital downloads. And thank you for those people who did enter. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. And Joel, I guess you can choose one lucky winner. Okay, let me spin the wheel of misfortune. Here we go. All right. We got the one, the only Roargasm, which is also fun to say. So congratulations <laughs> for winning. To you. Yeah, to you. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for taking part to to Roargasm and everybody else. So send us an email yes. at horrormoviecast at gmail.com and we will get you the digital download codes for that. Yes, yes, yes. All right, so let's go ahead and wrap this thing up and uh, we'll go around the horn. But before we do and get where everybody's uh, information about where they can be found online. I just want to say for those that are out there and you might be trying to tag me on Twitter or whatever it is these, these kids do these days with the Twitters. <laughs> uh, I am not really actively on Twitter. The Retro Movie Geek account is primarily run by my wonderful co-host on Retro Movie Geek, Peter Nielsen. Uh, he's always happy to get your tweets, just saying. But if you're trying to contact me for this show, you have a comment or, or you want to share something, please just go ahead and uh, hit me up at at horror movie cast or here's a thought you could also leave a comment at the show notes for the show right, at horrormoviepodcast.com I'm always happy Joel does read I, and respond to I, those I, so. I'm making it like and honestly it's funny because on retromoviegeek.com I've always been horrible I was I was like what Jay of the Dead was to horrormoviepodcast.com I was to retromoviegeek.com I guess it's like when it's your it, it, it's sort of like the mechanic when it's your car you never work on it <laughs> <laughs> so it's like sitting up on blocks but you know it's like I, I, I'm wanting to really get involved in the community Community. So if you want to hit me up, I'd love to read your comments and I'm happy to respond to them. So uh, definitely check Basically it out. Basically what I'm getting from both the Twitter comments and the website comments is you owe a huge apology to Peter on both fronts. <laughs> yes, that's probably, I, I, I think I perpetually owe him an apology. Daryl as well, okay. for that matter, uh, just for existing. But uh, yes, so I guess then that is where you can find me is in all of those places. And uh, Wolfman Josh, how about you? Uh, you can find me on social media at Icarus Arts, which is a foreshortened version of my production company name. I, I am on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Facebook at Icarus Arts. Uh, also doing the Universal Monsters cast with these two yahoos. And our next two episodes are going to be a Pet Cemetery versus episode, which we're all very excited about the new release, as well as, of course, the classic film, which we all love. Also, we're going to do very soon an At Your Mercy 
episode, which is a listener pick episode. Essentially, the listeners can submit shows for us to watch. We each pick one from the submissions to review. So just because you submit doesn't mean we're going to be watching it, but we are going to pick our favorites from amongst the submissions. So really excited about both of those episodes coming up right away. Yeah, that's about it. You can find me in the club. All right. Oh, you know what? I wanted to give a shout out to Raul and Carmen the Vampire Slayer. I got a chance to watch uh, us with both of them, as well as Matroid and Station from the Sci-Fi Podcast and some other fine folks. We did just an impromptu mini meetup in Salt Lake City. I was hoping Kagan and Jason could make it out for it. They didn't. Um, and William also was otherwise engaged, but it was fun to get together with a few people. It was really cool to meet those guys. And we went and we watched us. And uh, then a few of us went to Red Iguana and got the best Mexican food that Salt Lake City has to offer, which I think is pretty good. But according to Raul, no garbage. (laughs) 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 So thank you to those guys. It was it was nice meeting you. That's awesome. All right, Dave, where can they find you? Find me at uh, same old places, DVDinfatuation.com on Twitter at DVD Infatuation. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, podcast wise of course uh, the Universal Monsters cast the We Deal in Lead podcast to uh, talk about western films and uh, the Land of the Creeps with Greg Amortis, Haddonfield Hatchet Jesse Robbins, Justin Beam and myself alright so I guess we're going to put this episode to bed, tuck it in good and tight turn off the light, crack the door and listen as something starts to slowly crawl out from under the bed and remember we love your comments you can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com where you can also find all 171 of our past episodes and you can connect with us on twitter and instagram at horrormoviecast if you'd like to support horror movie podcast you can subscribe and leave a review on itunes apple podcasts you can get your listener designed hmp t-shirts at teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash horror movie cast we want to thank singer songwriter fred ingram for the use of his music for the horror movie podcast theme song you can find more fred's music at frederickingram.com we also want to thank composer Kagan Breitenbach for his arrangement and orchestration of Fred's original theme, which opens the show. You can find more of Kagan's work at KaganBreitenbach.com. And that's it for this episode. We hope you'll join us again Monday after next for our Versus episode of Pet Cemetery 2019 and Pet Cemetery 1989. And we thank you for joining us for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Turns out Nepia Nyong'o's main character is the real villain and not her doppelganger. And now everyone has doppelgangers and they all create the apocalypse. And there's a lot of symbolism and symbols and symbolism and symbols and symbolism and symbols and deep meanings and meanings and deep meanings and meanings and symbols and meanings and and symbols and meanings and symbols deep
your point about um, Richard Lawson, who could have been a leading man, it's shocking to me. I, I heard someone mention this is us, I should say, Jordan Peele's us, is Lupita Nyong'o's first starring role. I was like, mm. is that true? Yeah. Because I think of her as this huge star. Yeah, well, she won an know? Oscar. 12 Years a Slave. It's just interesting to think of someone who's an Oscar caliber actress who is seen as one of the great actresses in the world who's been in blockbuster after blockbuster from Black Panther to the new Star Wars films to the Jungle Book, and she hasn't really been the star of a film. You know, I guess Little Monsters... I guess I don't know, depending on which one you want to say came out first, because that one premiered at Sundance, this premiered at South by Southwest, but this one's now out in theaters and Little Monsters hasn't been released yet. You could also say, well, it's the same year. That's her other starring role. But it's crazy mm-hmm. that someone who essentially premiered in an Oscar winning role with 12 Years of Slave, she'd been in a few other things, but not recognizably, um, that it then took another, what? six years for her to get a starring role in a film. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Wow. I don't think I, I here's going to be an interesting way to look at this is does she continue? And I know we need, we're focused on horror door here, but does she have continued to not star it? You know what I mean? Like I feel like after being in a movie like this with such a strong opening, I, I expect to see her as a lead in a lot more stuff. So, yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's going to take a shift in Hollywood, though, you know, and I think you kind of said this in our women in horror episode. I think that perception is now gone that a black lead cast can't open a movie thanks to a film like Black Panther, but also, you know, thanks in part to Get Out and and now us. But I think even though sensible people know that's not a thing, it does take Hollywood sometimes a little bit longer to put that into practice. So it will be interesting now to see that she's opened a movie this big. If she'll get that opportunity to do that again, because again, like Ashley pointed out, she's not just a black actress. She's a dark skinned black actress. And maybe some people don't see the difference there, but the people you see getting those opportunities are Halle Berry and Will Smith and people who you would say, oh, they're a little more accessible. And, you know, why Why is that? Well, they're a lot lighter skinned than some of these other actors, you know. Right. I kind of liked seeing Ernest R. Dickerson and, uh, and Rusty become kind of main characters. I felt like they had a lot of really interesting things to say. So I thought it was cool because you have a lot of different people in the film, but I feel like they kind of emerged as as uh, some really good characters to return to. They had some interesting insights and rusty. So I had interviewed rusty. Sorry, this is a tangent, but um, because he's a, he had been a stand-up comedian and I had interviewed him for a stand-up comedy documentary about two years ago. And I had no idea that he was director of tales from the hood, or I would have been, been fanning all over him when I, when I ran into him, but because I was just talking to him as a, as a comedian, um, I had no idea about his. Did you know uh, about Fear, Fear of a Black Hat or any of those films? Or yeah. well, no, I mean he no because so I I didn't I just had not researched him basically, and the producer said, "Oh, this guy directed some Chappelle show, and he did stand up with John Panette. and I was like, "Oh, okay, cool," you know, and that was the you know the research that I had been giving basically. So, um, but anyway, I was really excited to see him in this movie too. What, Ashley, yeah. oh sorry, go ahead, Ashley, mm-hmm. go ahead, Ashley. No. No, I was just going to make a, a brief comment. I was just going to say, I mean, I knew, I knew Ernest. Um, of course, he he 
he directed some great horror films and directed some great horror television, but I also knew that he was a man who really knew his shit about <laughs> horror. Um, yeah. Cause I've just heard, interv- I've heard interviews. From, like there's like a few bonus features on the DVD of bones where he's talking about Mario Bava. And I'm just like, wait a minute. So I, I knew this guy <laughs> knew what he was talking about. And of course, yeah. Rusty, because I think tales from the hood really cemented, um, was a was a really big part of horror, specifically in the 1990s. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, we we covered uh, Tales from the Hood on Retro Movie Geek a few years back, and I hadn't seen it in years, and I I forgot how good that movie is. It is a fantastic film. Dave reminded me of something um, when you were saying, "Yeah, maybe thanks to Jordan Peele, this will change." And I thought, you know, within us there's this story about an artist who comes to the underground shows the others like, Oh, you're someone special. You're someone who we can put our faith in to help us get out of this mire. And I wondered if Jordan Peele saw himself in that role a little bit, if he sees the arts as a way to kind of tell that story. I wonder if that was a self-reference essentially Um, a piece of art, you know, that they create with the hands across America thing. They're, they're doing performance art. I need something that will, that people will notice. And I wondered if, you know, his own journey as someone who people see as like this, uh, a special person who can help them share their voice with the, the rest of the world, the mainstream world. I wonder if that was baked into that a little bit. He also, in some of his press appearances recently, he's dressed like Jack Torrance. He's wearing the exact <laughs> like jacket and shirt that that uh, Jack Nicholson wears. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like he maybe he's the villain. I also have heard him say, maybe I'm the tethered Jordan Peele who killed the comedy Jordan Peele, and now I'm here to make horror movies. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I love that that um, he's casting himself as this character that is maybe here to uh help the people out of of the darkness or the quiet place would be another way of putting it where people don't speak right yeah that's interesting i felt like there might be some allusions to people under the stairs because Mm. when the characters that aren't red (laughs) try to speak they reminded me very much of roach and the fact that, that yeah, the, the way he communicates, I mean, he tries to communicate, but he, what is, you know, his tongue has been cut out. So there is yeah. that, that, that limitation to him. He's obviously communicating, but he can't get out those thoughts. And even, and this is probably an extreme stretch, but the mask that Pluto reminded me a little bit, granted, it's more of, a, I guess, a ski mask, but, or I guess specifically, I guess it's meant to be the kind of mask you would wear if you'd had, uh, I would think, some kind of burn like burn, yeah. burn unit, you know, victim yeah. kind of thing. But they still that the Gip mask, you know, like that that the mm-hmm. uh, the man wears as he's skulking around the house and people on the stairs. So there were little things like that, little illusions. And again, I know that Peel is a fan of that movie, so it made me think, you know, maybe, maybe he was intending that. I don't know. Um, well, two comments on that actually. Like in Horror Noir, not only was I excited to see it that it was an important film in the Black Horror movement because you had just given so much love to it the episode before. On our show, I thought, oh, that's cool. But also, yeah, Peel, it seemed like, was particularly a fan of that film. Like, it had a big impact on him. And he actually specifically is the one who talks about Roach within the context of horror noir as well. So I thought, yeah, Joel, you might be right on there. The other thing that I wanted to mention on the show, I totally spaced, 
this his name is Jason and he wears a mask. Yes. Like I don't yeah. know how we never talked about that. It crossed my mind. Yeah, it did cross my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I started talking about the jumpsuits and I was gonna bring up the mask, but we got sidetracked. But but I also noticed there's a character named Josh. So either they are big fans of horror movie podcasts and wanted it's to make possible. sure Jason and Josh were in the show. It's possible. Uh, yeah, the other option I thought was, you know, Josh was the original name that they were going to give oh, to Oh, that's right. And then they changed it nice to Nice catch. So. Oh, how about this? Pluto, who back to my Hills Have Eyes sort of reference. Uh, Pluto is the Michael Berryman character, right? In yes. the original Hills Have Eyes. So the fact that the kid's name is Pluto, uh, I don't know. And he's bald, always looking bald. on all night, folks. I know. I really, I feel like this could go on forever. <laughs> 